Jesus. A reasonable police officer would consider, should we elevate the use of force as we meet this threat? And that's precisely what these officers did. <laughs> they just they discussed Obama bring using the speed. MRT, oh, the hobble. Oh, that's too much. Oh, he's getting his kid. Mama, I love you. They're discussing, should we use the hobble? Should we elevate our use of force? A reasonable officer would continue to evaluate whether the suspect is under the influence. Precisely what these officers did in nine minutes, in this nine minutes and 29 seconds. So reasonable police officers discuss the scene. The first clip, they're talking about the two other people that are over at the car, right? What's going on here? What are we dealing with? Is this person under the influence of a controlled substance? These are the actions of a reasonable police officer. The reasonable police officer would rely on his training and experience. Call EMS. Possibility that a suspect who was struggling with us will begin to struggle again. You've heard this testimony from multiple oh, police shark officers. Bait. The spit got him. The risk that the suspect would present to himself if he's not continued to be controlled. At least it pays off sometimes these days. And I the think risk they adjusted that the suspect it. presents to other officers or citizens if not continued to be controlled, if he's not continued to be controlled, right? These are things that all of the police officers have testified about. These are what a reasonable police officer should do. A reasonable police officer in this situation will call EMS. 2020-11, Within a minute of the struggle, EMS code two for a mouth injury, right? Because they are not observing life-threatening, a reasonable officer is not observing life-threatening injuries at this point. They just fought with the man for a minute. He continued to kick at them when they got him on the ground. They see he's got a mouth injury, we need EMS. So a reasonable police officer would evaluate the injuries of the suspect, compare words and actions, and respond by calling EMS, non-emergency. <laughs> Somebody but said, again, in retrospect, do you think Floyd regrets not getting in that car? <laughs> yeah, I think so. 2021, 8:21, one minute and 24 seconds later. I think so. I think we need get EMS in. here faster. 
We gave the Code option again. Three. I think he'd get in. 3.30. We need him here faster. I have faith that he would do the right thing this time. A reasonable police officer would take into consideration the anticipated time of a emergent response. You heard from Genevieve Hansen. There's a firehouse a few blocks away, and she would have expected EMS to be there within minutes. Three minutes is what she said. A reasonable police officer, based on his training and experience, is going to have and take that into consideration. I put this person in a prone position on the ground. I'm holding them for my safety and their safety. He's using I'm their own testimony to against them. Wow. They minutes. thought that was damning, to too. Help this person. Oh, my I God. The three minutes. For that help. Wow. That was the nasty mud shark. Yeah. Using their own words a against them. A reasonable police officer will take into consideration, again, his training, his experience. Right? He's like, well, hey, he thought it was only going to be three, five minutes, like you said. Wow. It is not uncommon for suspects to feign or pretend to have a medical emergency to avoid being arrested. Is he winning the case right now? Unfortunately, that is the reality. Nobody likes to get arrested, and reasonable police officers know that. How many times does someone, oh, my heart hurts, or I'm having a medical emergency, insert whatever emergency, right? Simply because they don't want to go to jail. on clothes? I don't know, man. It feels like it. It feels like it. A reasonable police officer I'm not sure will if take that's just me his training it to into, true, ex but... into experience. And you heard Lieutenant Mercil specifically say that when someone says that they can't breathe, but they are talking... It feels like if they're it might talking, be. it means they're breathing, right? If they're talking, it means they're breathing. And again, compare that to the testimony of Dr. Tobin, who told you that same thing. That is true. If you are talking, you are breathing. It doesn't mean effectively. And Dr. Tobin described how even medical doctors have problems sometimes assessing the, the legitimacy of a patient's needs relevant to their respiratory processes because they're saying, I can't breathe, and some doctors confuse it for just anxiety or this He's or that. In, so if medical doctors it's so much better mistakes, than theirs. Dr. Tobin told you it provides a false sense of security. He's just a better right? lawyer. Lieutenant Mercil told you that that is what it's he like said. It's like watching an NBA guy go up against officers. a high school basketball player. He's the trainer. Like an all-pro NBA. So how many times do we hear an officer say, Based on his training and experience, if you can breathe, you can talk. <laughs> Expect murder charges against talk, Nelson. Next, talk. according to one step. Holy <laughs> shit. Well, we've been on for, like, a long time, Anamish. Um, we're, in, we're on the defense closing. Prosecution was really bad. Ah, 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 ah,
officers, again, are trained and take into consideration a person's actions relevant to their words, their training, their experience. Takes a lot of oxygen to talk. Takes a lot of oxygen. You're breathing fine if you can talk. Reasonable police officers will take into consideration their training and experience on excited delirium, and they will analyze it within the context of this case. I worry about the excited or delirium or whatever. That's why we have EMS coming. It's not just leave them here. It's we have EMS coming, and this is why we have EMS coming. Reasonable police officers throughout the course of a control technique will continue to assess the level of resistance. Remember what Sergeant, excuse me, Lieutenant Johnny Mercil said. Simply because a person isn't kicking at you or punching at you or biting at you, it does not mean that you can't control them physically with your body weight. This is at 824. This is the point where Dr. Tobin testified that Mr. Floyd had an anoxic seizure, right? But it's not, we're not analyzing the use of force from the perspective of a doctor with 46 years of medical experience who had 150 hours of time to watch an event from multiple perspectives over uh -huh. and over and over and over again. It's a reasonable police officer standard. How would a reasonable police officer interpret this? Does a reasonable police officer even know what an anoxic seizure is? <laughs> a reasonable no. police officer will interpret this as at least some form of minimal resistance. Reasonable police officers, again, are continuing to monitor. They're expecting EMS to arrive. Bro, 
Non-deadly force is included. It includes, but it is not limited to physically subduing, controlling, capturing, restraining, or physically managing a person. These are the policies of the Minneapolis Police Department. Reasonable police officers, again, continue to monitor. See if he's breathing. Reasonable police officers are building and basing their decisions based on all of these factors coming in at multiple times, including the bystanders. There we go. I knew he was getting call up to the it. crowd, call them onlookers, call them bystanders. It doesn't matter what term you use for the people that gather to watch what police do. Reasonable police officers are cognizant of and aware of their surroundings. What's he about to say now? And before I really kind of start talking about the crowd in uh, some de limited detail, I have thought a lot during the course of this trial about the difference between perspective and perception. I'd slap the fuck out perspective of you. Perspective and perception are two distinct concepts. Perspective is the angle at which you see something. It's your perspective. Perception is how you interpret what it is that you see. I thought about this a lot during the course of this trial because this uh, situation here in the courtroom is incredibly unique, right? It's not the normal setup for a jury trial. So my perspective through the course of this trial, sitting in this chair, is that I cannot see four of the jurors. Very limited opportunity to observe the jurors. They probably can't see me. Wow, either. look at this. Several of the jurors I have a very good view of. Four of the jurors I don't, and obstructed views of others. My perspective sitting in this chair when witnesses, this is there's brilliant. a camera blocking the head. So in order for me to see the witness, this I have to roll all the way over to the other side. Then I have to look through the plexiglass that has these large <laughs> reflecting lights. Right? Things block your perspective. Things can affect your perspective. But your perception is how you interpret what it is you see and what it is you experience. And that is our life, right? This is our experiences. These are the things that make us who we are. Three people in this trial went to the same high school. Me, Darnella Frazier, 
and Chief Arredondo. We all went to the same high school, obviously at different times. My experience, Chief Arredondo's experience, Darnella Frazier's experience, all based on, went to the, we had the same perspective, sat in the same classrooms, saw the same chalkboards or whiteboards, the same perspective. But our perception of our experiences there is going to be much different. Ultimately, at the end of the case, when we're done with these arguments, the court will instruct you on how to deal with these biases and the perception issues. The court's final instructions will guide you to try to recognize your biases. 1420 Live, let's go! What we bring to the table and analyze the evidence from the perspective of the evidence itself. So let's look at this incident on May 25th from the perspectives and perceptions of simply just four of the bystanders, right? Charles McMillan, 61 years old, third grade in education, grew up in the South. He described himself as a curious guy. He likes to know what's going on in his neighborhood. So he stops and he checks things out, right? His perspective, he's the first one who's dealing with these guys. He has more information because he sees the entirety of the situation. But his perception of the event is affected by his life's experiences. At the end of the night, ultimately what he said to Officer Chauvin was, I hope you get home safely, because that's what he says to police officers every night. She's a 17-year-old high school student who, upon seeing the restraint of George Floyd, her response was to pull out the cell phone and start recording, and then subsequently upload it to Facebook, right? Her perception of the event and her perspective of the event. She's looking. She didn't even know that officers Lane and King were there because her perspective was blocked by the squad car. But her perception, her response to the situation was to record it. And that's perfectly fine. But she began her recording at 8, 20, and 51 seconds. Donald Williams. He's a 33-year-old professional mixed martial artist who arrived at 8, 22, and 39. He had spent the day fishing with his son, stopping for a drink when he became aware of the incident. He described his view of this based upon his perception as a mixed martial artist, right? He has a set of experiences Five and six record, that by the way. caused him to react a in scrub. a different way. Actually, what he's he the bum. What he perceived was happening was that Mr. Floyd was being choked with a blood choke. I think we're past this at this point. The paramedic reached in, touched the carotid artery, 
to have a person rendered unconscious through a choke requires the, the blockage of both carotid arteries. This was not a neck restraint. This was not a chokehold. That's true. Still better to see him punch. He was upset. And that, again, is okay because his perception affected what he was seeing. Genevieve Hansen, right? 27-year-old female firefighter for the city of Minneapolis. She testified that when she walked into the scene, she described the crowd as upset. She said, I walked into an upset crowd. She said that the other voices distracted me from getting the officer's attention. And she testified, again, based on her perspective, that Officer Chauvin appeared to have his hand in his pocket. She observed what she believed to be blood on the, uh, from Mr. Floyd's face being pressed into the pavement. She observed fluid coming from Mr. Floyd's body that she presumed to be urine. She testified that nobody ever told her that EMS or an ambulance was on the way. She asked about, when I asked her about the response time she would have expected, three minutes. When I told her that paramedics had been called about five minutes prior to her arriving uh-huh. on scene, no way. Because her perception is three minutes. But when you look at the things this that Miss Hansen saw, whether it be from her perspective or her perception, there can always be more to the story. The blood coming from Mr. Floyd's nose was why they called EMS in the first place. You've seen the pictures. He injured his nose during the struggle or his face during the struggle in the squad car. The fluid that she described as potentially being urine, we know that that's fluid coming from the underside carriage of the squad car. Officer Chauvin specifically told her an ambulance was coming when she first came on scene. Yep, we got an ambulance coming. The computer-aided dispatch reports clearly show what time EMS was called. So Genevieve Hansen has a perspective and a perception. And what she observed was not consistent with the actual evidence. But remember, we don't look at this incident from the perspective of a bystander. We do not look at this incident from the perspective of the people who were upset by it. We look at it from the perspective of a reasonable police officer. A reasonable police officer, when confronted with these bystanders, would know everything that had occurred up to that point. 20 minutes, 25 minutes, 30 minutes. They know all of that information. The bystanders do not. A reasonable police officer would understand that his actions were actually being recorded. Take the bystanders out of it. Officers wear cameras for a very specific reason, to record their actions, so they know they're being recorded. Officers are aware 
of the placement of city cameras. You're in a high retail, you've got gas stations, restaurants, uh, convenience store, high surveillance. Right? Reasonable police officers know this. They would know if citizens take out their cell phones and start filming. This is the point at 8.20 and 49 seconds when Ms. Frazier starts recording. Reasonable police officers are aware when they're using force that sometimes what they are doing does not look good to the general public. A reasonable police officer will hear the frustration growing. Right? A reasonable police officer will hear the increase in the volume of the voices. A reasonable police officer will hear the name calling, right? Chomp, whatever, whatever names are being called. They'll hear the cursing. They're, they're, it does, they'll hear this, and they'll take that into their consideration. A reasonable police officer will rely on his recent training. You a bomb, bro. Pussy. A reasonable police officer will hear what an, I'll come back to the training. A reasonable police officer will hear what the crowd is, is saying. He will compare his actions to what they are saying. And he will determine, I know I'm being recorded, right? I know I'm being recorded. They're saying that I'm doing something that's awful looking. Am I going, am I doing this? see Officer Chauvin's body language tells us a lot, right? That's what we just heard. Looking down, looking up, looking around, looking down, looking over, looking around. He's comparing a reasonable police officer. He's doing what a reasonable police officer would do. He's comparing his actions, his own actions, in response to what the crowd is saying. A reasonable police officer, again, will rely on his training. 2020, March of 2020, tactics of a crowd. Never underestimate a crowd's potential. Most crowds are compliant. Crowds are very dynamic creatures and can change rapidly. A crowd may contain elements of several types of groups. Now, I acknowledge that this is in dealing with massive crowds, protests and things of that nature. These are the tactics, but you never underestimate a crowd's potential because a reasonable police officer has to be aware and alert to his surroundings. A reasonable police officer 
will consider his department's policies on crisis and what is defined as a crisis. Crisis, an event or situation where an individual's safety and health are threatened by behavioral challenges to include mental illness, developmental disabilities, substance abuse, or overwhelming stressors. A crisis can involve an individual's perception or experience of an event or situation as an intolerable difficulty that exceeds the individual's current resources and coping mechanisms and may include unusual stress in his or her life that renders him or her unable to function as he or she normally would. The crisis may Sounds not exactly like George Floyd. may, but may not necessarily result in an upward trajectory or intensity culminating, culminating in thoughts or acts that are possibly dangerous to himself, herself, or others. Right? A reasonable police officer is recognizing that the crowd is in crisis. That all of these things, the members, the bystanders, the citizens, whatever you want to call them, they are in crisis. So a reasonable police officer considers his department's training. What are these potential signs of aggression that I may be confronted with? Somebody standing tall. Somebody red in their face, raised voice, heavy breathing, tense muscles, pacing, right? This is from the crisis intervention training. This is what Kerr Yang testified to. These are signs that police officers are trained to look for in a crisis as potential signs of aggression. How do you respond to those? You appear confident in your actions. You stay calm. You maintain space. You speak slowly and softly, and you avoid staring and eye contact. Again, these are things that Kerr Yang discussed in terms of how to deal with a crisis. As this crowd grew more and more upset or deeper into crisis, a very critical thing happens at a very precise moment. And I cannot, in my opinion, understate the importance of this moment, the critical moment in this case. If you recall from Dr. Tobin's testimony, nobody disagreed, that Mr. Floyd took his last breath at 825.16. 825.16. What is happening at the very precise moment that Mr. Floyd takes his last breath? You're taking one piece of evidence and you're comparing it against the rest. This moment, 825.16, as Mr. Floyd is taking his last breath. Three things happen. Mr. Floyd takes his last breath. You see Officer Chauvin's reaction to the crowd is to pull his mace and shake it 
He's threatening the use of force, as is permitted by the Minneapolis Police Department policy. And Genevieve Hansen walks in at that time from behind him, startling him. All of these facts and circumstances simultaneously occur at a critical moment. And that changed Officer Chauvin's perception of what was happening. After this point, the crowd grows louder and louder, right? And at this point now, Mr. Floyd has taken his last breath, and the question is the rendering of medical aid. When do we stop CPR, according to the Minneapolis Police Department's policy? When it's not safe. You wow, heard there it is. It's Lieutenant not Mercil safe. talk about this, and you also heard um, Nicole McKenzie talk about this. Consider Nicole McKenzie's testimony. As far as the reasonable police officer, which would include Nicole McKenzie, she discussed at length the difficulty of performing CPR in what she would describe as, or she did describe as, a hostile environment. You miss signs. You agonal breathing can be confused for effective breathing. As she testified, people in the area can affect the decision to treat a subject at the scene. She described how it is incredibly difficult to perform EMS efforts in a loud crowd, difficult to focus when you don't feel safe, makes it more difficult to assess a patient, makes it more likely that you can miss signs that a patient is experiencing something. So the distraction, she said, can actually do harm to a patient. When we're talking about this critical decision-making model, right? As Lieutenant Mercil said, he testified, sometimes you have to take into consideration whether it is worth the risk to remove the handcuffs and render medical aid because it's unpredictable, right? All of this information is coming at a reasonable officer. The reasonable police officer standard can also be extended to Officer Chang, right? What is his perception of the crowd? You heard him testify, but you can also look at what his body, what was he doing during, his, during this time? like that. I fucking dare you pussy ass fucking bum. I swear I'll slap the fuck. What was that? Okay, let's stay put. We'll figure it out, right? Right? You've got Officer Chang pacing, turning around 360 degrees, right? His attention is focused on what's happening with the crowd, but he also has another job, right? Reasonable police officers and how they interact with the crowd 
is a consideration. You can also take into consideration the reactions of Shawanda Hill and Maurice Hall. police officer and their reactions to what's happening but also consider the paramedics right the paramedics they did the load and go right as Derek Smith testified he got out of the ambulance he checked all four corners to gauge what was happening and determined in his words that it was an unwelcoming environment and he told his partner they needed to move to a different location, a more safe and secure location. Remember Nicole McKenzie's testimony too, as unreasonable as it sounds, paramedics get attacked too. We have all of these different opinions in terms of the use of force, right? We have all of the opinions of Seth Stoughton, Jody Steiger, Barry Broad, Zimmerman, Arredondo, David Pluger, Lieutenant Mercil, and they all reach very different conclusions about when the force became unreasonable. All you have to know about Barry Broad is what he was talking about is this physically managing any person. His opinion was you can use non-deadly force to physically manage a person. It's all within the model of the MPD decision-making model. I found the most interesting person to be relevant to the use of force, Lieutenant Johnny Mercer, considering that he is Derek Chauvin's actual use of force trainer. So the best glimpse that we're going to get into the training of a Minneapolis police officer comes from the trainer who conducts the trainings. He's conducted hundreds of trainings over the years. He corrected the st state at certain times in terms of how strike charts don't apply to restraint techniques. He said the knee on the neck is not an unauthorized move and it can be utilized in certain circumstances. He described using a knee on the neck and back and stated that it can be there for an extended period of time depending on the level of resistance you get. He said that once the suspect is handcuffed, it does not necessarily mean that it is time to move your leg because when people are handcuffed, they can thrash around and continue to be dangerous to themselves and others. He talked about the ground defense program because it's safer for both the suspect and the officer. He talked about ground defense as a form of using your weight to control a subject without, and, and therefore replacing the need to punch or strike them. He said there's no strict techniques. You need to be fluid and adapt to the circumstances. That he personally trains officers to put a knee over the shoulder 
up to the base, base of the deck, the neck, and he described this maneuver as routinely trained by the Minneapolis Police Department. He testified that there are circumstances that an officer would need to use his weight to continue to control. What's up, Runner? Just listen to this closing. the concept of awful but lawful, right? Sometimes the use of force is just not that attractive. He's experienced himself arresting people who have claimed to have a medical emergency. He explained how one way people can resist is through their words. He described how someone resisting can become passive and resistant He discussed how officers are trained not just to focus on the subject, but also the bystanders. He trains officers that if you're fighting with a suspect and that person then becomes compliant, it is a legitimate consideration for the continued use of force to control a subject. That if a subject overpowers more than one officer at a time, that is a legitimate consideration in the continuation. Dumbass of the Uwu says court. whatever happens, Floyd. He talked about substance abuse. Went and out how like that a bitch. Officers are. He wasn't trained, about that life, so the right? good Lord took it. I understand. Oh my God! Superhuman strength oh my God. is not a, a real phenomenon. It wasn't really about I the mean, thug there life. There are no Superman or Spiderman, right? But officers are specifically trained that someone be, under the you. influence of certain types Five of gifted subs controlled substances exhibit this behavior they become stronger than they normally would we've all heard the anecdotal stories of the pregnant mom lifting the car off of a, of a someone right it's not literally describing a superhero it's simply describing that someone is more exhibiting a greater strength and the minneapolis police department specifically trains that he trains on neck restraints Minneapolis Police Department has a specific written policy on the use of neck restraints. White raised, thank permitted, you. Even though this wasn't a neck restraint or a chokehold. He talked about how you need to cut off the blood supply for this for a neck restraint to both sides of the neck. He talked about how someone whose heart rate is beating faster, they go unconscious quicker, less than 10 seconds. He described the human factors of force. That is, how does the use of force affect the officer himself, his cognition, his abilities, his mental Dread and physical says, uh, Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, everything that other guy said not is bullshit. MRT is a form of de-escalation. He described that sometimes you have to use your body weight to control a subject until the scene is code four. He said that Minneapolis will train officers that under certain circumstances, an officer can hold a person in the prone position until the scene is safe. And he's done it himself at times. You have to take into consideration the presence of bystanders, where officers are located, and the environment that they're in. Lieutenant Mercil agreed that there are circumstances where you, as I talked about this a little earlier ago, where you have to make a decision, is it work the risk to take the handcuffs off to perform medical Save killstream.live in your URL browser. He said there are circumstances where you wouldn't put someone in a recovery position. Depending upon the, sa the safety of people, including the crowd, while awaiting EMS, he described how crowds can make situations chaotic, 
He said, simply because a person is not actively resisting, that does not mean that you cannot use force. Right? Doesn't mean that you cannot use force. Simply because someone isn't stabbing you, or punching you, or shooting at you, it doesn't mean that you can't use force. And that is specifically in the Minneapolis Police Department policy on the non-deadly use of force that we've looked at a couple of times. The use of force is an incredibly difficult analysis. You can't limit it to nine minutes and 29 seconds. It started 17 minutes before that nine minutes and 29 seconds. All of this information has to be taken you have to look at it from the totality of the circumstances. You have to look at it from the reasonable police officer standpoint. You have to take into account that officers are human beings capable of making mistakes in highly stressful situations. In this case, the totality of the circumstances that were known to a reasonable police officer in the precise moment the force was used demonstrates that this was an authorized use of force as unattractive as it may be and this is reasonable doubt steiger talked about being on the panel right they have five officers on a panel to assess whether uses of force are reasonable jacob Sometimes thank you on cash app Sometimes it's he says, be two. gone, Marianne. Sometimes it's five to zero. Because the reasonableness of the use of force is not an easy, easy thing. Be gone, Marianne. I know, again, I'm, and I'm sorry, I'm long-winded. There are a couple be, of other things I need to talk it. about very I briefly. I promise I'll be as brief as I can before I get to the cause of death. I think it's begun, yeah. First is that concept of intent. As the state showed you, with respect, respect to counts one and two, you have to address Mr. Chauvin's intent. Pay careful attention again to the instructions. Words have meaning. Intentionally or intentional means that the defendant either has the purpose to do the thing or cause the result specified or believes that the act, if successful, will cause the result. In addition, the defendant must have knowledge of those facts that are necessary to make his conduct criminal and that are set forth after the word intentionally, intentional. It's the same, same you'll see a very similar uh, instruction. You'll see this very similar instruction twice. Intent. Did Officer Chauvin intentionally apply unlawful force? That's what you're being asked to decide. Did he purposefully, purposefully apply unlawful force to another person? In count two, you have to decide, did he purposely perform an act? Did he intentionally perform an act that was eminently dangerous? Right? What considerations do you have to, at your disposal? What pieces of evidence do you have 
I'm going to try to go through these quickly. What evidence is there? What evidence is inconsistent with intent? Some facts and circumstances that are important for you to decide in terms of his intent is within the context of aiding and abetting other people. First, officers know that they are being videotaped. They know they're being videotaped by themselves. They know they're being videotaped by bystanders. They know they're being surveilled by the Minneapolis Police Department milestone camera, right? They know these things. Do you do something purposefully that you know is an unlawful use of force when you have four body-worn cameras immediately in the area where you have multiple civilians videotaping you, where you know your actions are being reviewed through a city-owned camera, where there are surveillance cameras? Do people do things intentionally and purposefully when they know they're being watched? Remember, Officer Lane offered to have Shags three. Thank you so Mr. much, sir. Floyd into the squad Built car. He said, I'll sit with you. I'll put the window down. I'll turn on the air conditioner. Please, I'm just claustrophobic. That's it. Oh, I'm still going in the car. Anything sharp on you? I won't do nothing to hurt you. I'm sorry. Nothing, sir. Why y'all doing me like this? I was a please. You got to get pulling for me and stuff, man. I am claustrophobic for real. I was a. You got him. Can you please back it for me, please? Yes, I'm back. Stay with me, man. I will. Please stay with me, man. Thank you. down three times. I'll turn on the air conditioning. Is that evidence of intent to apply unlawful force? Officer Chauvin confirms that Mr. Floyd is under arrest. He's under arrest right now for forgery. Tell what's going on. Officer Chauvin made a decision not to use higher levels of force when he would have been authorized to do that, including punches, kicks, elbows, right? All of these tools were available to Officer Chauvin. That is not an intent to purposefully use unlawful force. They call for EMS within one minute of putting him on the ground. They step it up within another minute and a half. He believes that his, Officer Chauvin believes that Mr. Floyd's ability to speak means he can breathe and they say it repeatedly, remember? Oh. Oh. 
Mm. They tell him to relax. This is a brilliant closing right. argument. I don't know what, I don't know what else to say. Chaos X, thank you so much. This is just so far superior to the prosecution in every way. Officer Chauvin is never swearing at him. He's not calling him names. All of this stuff that we've already talked about, and I don't, I don't need to go through this again. All of this stuff that we've talked about throughout the entirety of this circumstance does not reflect an intent to purposefully, intentionally commit an unlawful use of force. All of the evidence shows that Mr. Chauvin thought he was following his training. He was, in fact, following his training. He was following Minneapolis Police Department policies. He was trained this way. It all demonstrates a lack of intent. There is absolutely no evidence that Officer Chauvin intentionally, purposefully applied un unlawful force. <laughs> officer Chauvin is also refocusing the other officers, telling them they need to do things to pay attention to Mr. Floyd. <laughs> Sizer, thank you, sir. Should I put his stuff in the car? No, we need to get him in the ambulance. Refocus. Sizer, right? Officer you, Chauvin had no intent. Loyal. To purposefully viewer, thank use. You. He did not purposefully Boom use hour. unlawful force. Got a sub from Weeby. Thank it's, you. It's these are officers doing their job in a highly stressful situation. According to their training, according to the policies of the Minneapolis Police Department, and it is, it's, it's tragic. It's sad, sad, sad. It's tragic. Gumferbama says, you go to the hospital. If Floyd was lit, you must have quit. I'm going to, I'm going to. They perform CPR. I say in a justice and children walks. But no matter the outcome, Killstream wins. Was this an eminently dangerous act? Was putting Mr. Floyd an eminently dangerous act? We've heard a lot about the prone position. Consider just the basic prone position. People sleep in the prone position. People suntan in the prone position. People get massages in the prone position. The prone position in and of itself is not an inherently dangerous act. It is not an inherently dangerous act. A prone position during restraint is not an inherently dangerous act. If Floyd was lit, you must It is routinely trained and used by the Minneapolis Police I didn't cite you, Gumperman. I'm sorry. It gets more retweets. The studies If I cite it, it won't get as many retweets. Canadian studies that were referenced by Dr. Fowler. I'm on air saying it was yours, though. 1,269 <laughs> cases, use of force, one death of a person not in the prone position. Right? These are people, they're looking at people in the prone position. 
4,828 consecutive force events. No significant clinical effects on the subject's physiology. Right? We can look at all of the other studies trying to determine this question is, is putting a subject in the prone position, Stacey, even with officers on top, Stacey even with said, weight on top of the person, is that inherently Stacey Mark III says, I have to change my Twitter answer. And the this research is says no. The practical experience says yeah. That says no. The prone position, when applied through a use of force, is not an eminently dangerous act because there is no evidence to support the notion that it was highly likely, that's the standard, highly likely to cause death. There's reasonable doubt about that. So let's talk about the cause of death. And I, again, if I'm sorry lit, to, to be long-winded. But I have to address the cause of death. Because the state oh, neglected to, to read perhaps one of the most important sentences from the instruction and why you must read the instruction carefully. Yes, the defendant is criminally liable for all of the consequences of his actions that occur in the ordinary and natural course of events, including those consequences brought about by one or more intervening causes. If such intervening causes were the natural result of the defendant's act. Clifford C. Clavin says, so John 8.32, and ye shall know the truth, the natural consequences the truth, of the defendant's free. acts, he's liable. So think about it in this example. Oh, shit. Police officer arrests somebody. They're going to have to remake he the hats. that person Most likely. August afternoon Infinite. in the backseat of a squad car. Rolls up the window, turns on the heat. We're going to hear from the post office And tomorrow. leaves the person in there, right? Person dies of a heat stroke. Officer put him in there and is responsible for the natural consequences of his actions. But consider the situation where police officer arrests someone. They're compliant. They go into the backseat of the squad car. They're sitting in the backseat of the squad car. And they have a heart attack. They have a pulmonary embolism. They have a brain aneurysm. They already said Something happens to that it's person that was not the natural consequence of being arrested. It was just a physiological something that happened to that individual. The officer is not liable because it's not in the natural course of events. And it's not the result, the natural result of the defendant's act. Right? So again, read the entire instruction. The significance of this instruction, again, is that it goes through all of the three charges. You have to be convinced that the defendant's actions caused the death of Mr. Floyd. And throughout the course of this trial, the state has tried and called numerous witnesses to try to convince you that Asphyxiation is the singular cause of death. The singular cause of death. And why is that? It's because actions that happened before Mr. Floyd was arrested that had nothing to do with Officer Chauvin's activities 
are not the natural consequences of the defendant's actions. You have to focus on the consequence of the defendant's acts. And so the state has tried to convince you beyond a reasonable doubt that the stress of being arrested and the adrenaline produced as a result of Mr. Floyd's physical resistance played no role. This is what they have to try to convince you. There's no role of that physical exertion played no role in this death. They're trying to convince you beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Floyd's heart disease played no role in this case. Oh, sir, get to the sub. Thank you, man. The state must try to convince you beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Floyd's history of hypertension played absolutely no role in the cause of Mr. Floyd's death. The state must convince you beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Floyd was not experiencing excited delirium that contributed to the cause of his death. The state has to convince you beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Floyd's paraganglioma was not contributing to the cause of death. The state must convince you beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Floyd's toxicology played no role in his death. Right? Beyond a reasonable doubt. The state would have to convince you beyond a reasonable doubt that a combination of these pre-existing issues did not contribute to Mr. Floyd's death. That is why the state has brought in expert after expert after expert to testify that the singular cause of death, the singular cause of death here is asphyxiation. Chaos over on Cash House. Said good job covering the trial. Thank you, Mr. man. Mr. Floyd was Much asphyxiated. As a result of the police restraint, he is liable for the natural consequences of that restraint, of his actions. But if any of these other factors come into it, if any of these other factors were substantial contributing factors of Mr. Floyd's death, because they were not the natural result of the restraint, the person has drugs in their system, and that drug causes an overdose in the context of the police restraint. It's not the natural consequence of the restraint. It's the natural consequence of the deceased's actions. So the state has called six experts. Chauvin. Really five. But I'll include Dr. Baker. The state first called Dr. Tobin, a pulmonologist. Uh Dr. Tobin said that you need to apply common sense to the evaluation of the medical testimony. He testified that Mr. Floyd died exclusively from positional asphyxia, coronary artery disease, hypertension, controlled substances. They played absolutely no role in the death, according to Dr. Tobin. The state called Dr. Eisenschmidt a toxicologist, to explain to you that Mr. Floyd's toxicological levels were somehow more consistent with a DWI case than a whole bunch of other cases that may or may not (laughs) have involved an overdose. Remember the ratio where you said, well, no, these are cases, they may have died of something else. They may may have died of a gunshot fentanyl in their system. I missed the stars there recently. Chauvin went no mass today. I don't actually know. strange statistics 
but essentially attempting to try to convince you that that these levels are insignificant. People drive their cars around the jury to see him, right? And that therefore the drugs played no role. Clearly, he did. Third, the state called Doctor Smock, an emergency room physician, right, to explain to you that Mr. Floyd was not experiencing any symptoms of excited delirium. And that coronary artery disease, hypertension, controlled substances, none of that comes into play. He called Dr. Thomas, a pathologist, to testify how she interpreted what Dr. Baker meant. How she concluded that Dr. Baker simply said that the cardiopulmonary arrest is the basic way everybody dies. And she interpreted the reason why Dr. Baker put those factors on his autopsy or on the death certificate were merely for statistical purposes. You put stuff, we just, the CDC requires us to put that stuff on there. And it was an asphyxial death, controlled substances played no role, hypertension played no role, coronary artery disease played no role, So he called and Dr. Says, Baker. We'll talk about Dr. Baker in a minute. Matthew McConaughey, finally, the president of the, the state Republic called Dr. Rich. Of Texas, let's go. A cardiologist <laughs> who concluded that despite a 90% narrowing of the right coronary artery and a 75% narrowing in the left anterior descending artery, despite an enlarged heart and a history of hypertension, that Floyd, Mr. Floyd had a strong heart and that none of those pre-existing and coexisting conditions in any way contributed to the death of Mr. Floyd. Killstream one at protonmail.com. If Schmack, you want the email for the hat. Thomas and Rich. They're behind the schedule now. The absolute face of reason and common sense. Somebody in chat asked for that. It, it's it's astounding. They're still common. Especially just... when you consider the actual findings of Dr. Baker. Because Dr. Baker is the only person who actually performed the autopsy in this case. He's the only person who performed the actual autopsy. Really hard. He told you that he specifically avoided watching the video (laughs) because he didn't want to bias or influence his uh, autopsy. Ethiopian children now rocking Killstream hats. Some I don't know. Some specifically testified. That there was no evidence of asphyxia. USPS literally just lost. There were no evidence of petechial hemorrhaging. There was no bruising to the neck or back above the skin, under the skin, or into the subcutaneous muscles of the neck and back. And he would expect to see those things in a case like this. No bruising whatsoever. There was no finding that pressure was applied to the point of Mr. Back to cause these injuries. There were no injuries to the structures of his neck, and that when he finally did review the video, it didn't appear that the placement of the knee affected the structures of the neck because Mr. Floyd could lift up his head, turn his head, move it around. He saw no fractures to the structures of the neck, including the hyoid bone. There were no soft tissue injuries to the sides of Mr. Floyd's neck. There was no hemorrhaging or injury to the hypopharynx. No evidence of life-threatening injury to the neck 
or spinal column of Mr. Ford. Yeah, I'm not going to have to there pay for the pulmonary hats, edema, which is the swelling of the lungs, which could could be caused by the resuscitative efforts or fentanyl. But it's still annoying. There's no evidence of hypoxic changes to the brain. It's not their There's fault. There's no man. evidence of it's any brain injury office. consistent with an affixed Oh, you mean did they death. reimburse? I don't know. That's on there. He yeah. found a paraganglioma, and he said it was an incidental finding. I hope so, though. He said his heart was enlarged. Mr. Floyd's heart was enlarged, right? Dr. Baker, Dr. Thomas, Dr. Rich, and Dr. Fowler all agreed. All right, enough about hats. <laughs> he found narrowing of the right coronary artery. But yeah, 90% I think narrowing. there's like $100. He found 75% narrowing That's not of the left of it, anterior but. descending artery. He's the person who did the talk. He sent out the toxicology samples. Fentanyl level at 11 nanograms per milliliter. I don't know how it works. I've never claimed. Methamphetamine at oh, 0.19 per milliliter. Fent at 11. All of these findings that are relied upon by all of these other experts. Legendary party animal, George Floyd. He determined that the manner of death was a homicide, right? Homicide. But yeah, homicide, I've never actually claimed reimbursement read the definition USPS, but of the medical There is a way to get something out of them. It is to be emphasized that the classification of homicide for the purposes of the death certificate is a neutral term and neither indicates nor implies criminal intent, which remains a determination of within the province of the legal processes. Oh, yeah, we got 987 right. here, Lord the Aragon. Fact that he found this a homicide is a medical term. Over 500 on Chillstream Clips. Dr. Fowler talked about the undetermined manner. We have 1,500 Could watching live. Determined is a classification used when the information pointing to one manner of death is no more compelling than one or more other competing manners of death in or through consideration of all available information. Dr. Uh, Baker found the immediate cause of death and the other contributing factors. Cardiopulmonary arrests, complicating law enforcement, subdual neck restraint and neck compression, other contributing factors, arth arteriosclerotic and hypertensive heart disease, fentanyl intoxication, and recent methamphetamine use. The term complicating in this is important because Dr. Baker is, was able to give you what he said his actual intent was, right? Dr. Thomas speculated about what she thought Dr. Baker meant. Dr. Baker was able to tell you what he meant. He defined complicating as an intervention that occurred an intervention occurred and there was an untoward outcome on the heels of that intervention. And he gave you a specific example. He described a person having a hip surgery and a blood clot comes loose and that blood clot causes a death. The hip surgery didn't cause the death. The death was caused by the blood clot that complicated the surgery. So as I understand his testimony, what Dr. Baker was saying was that there was an unexpected result. The death of Mr. Floyd occurred. Okay, 12, thank you. Oh, my God. Big King 12, thank you. What just happened? No! Oh, my God. Roll in the death. If something is insignificant to death, the you fuck? don't put it on the death. How'd that happen? Well, we switched. So Dr. Baker's conclusions 
can't the Mr. Floyd's arteriosclerotic and hypertensive disease played a role in the death of Mr. This Floyd. is dead. Wow. Dr. That's Baker a concluded that Mr. Floyd's fentanyl intoxication played a role. Just pray my shit doesn't go Dr. Floyd's, excuse me, Dr. Baker concluded Dr. Floyd. that Mr. Floyd's recent methamphetamine use played Nick a Kane, role. Nick 12, thank you, man. Right? Dr. Baker described that this death of Mr. Floyd was a Dr. Floyd. Somebody do Dr. Floyd like um, in the Dr. Mario style. Can somebody tweet that at me right now? No single factor, one over the other, played any more of a result, played any more of a role resulting in Mr. Floyd's death. He said his heart simply couldn't handle within the context of the subdual and restraint. Dr. Mario was a shit. Apparently, the state, as they just argued, wants you to believe what you see. And they did not like Dr. Baker's conclusions. And you can see the process Dr. Baker talked about when he had several meetings, right? This happened in March. Excuse me, happened in May, June, July, by August. Talk to a pulmonologist. Talk to emergency room doctor. Not within my area of expertise. Talk to a cardiologist. Right? He, his findings didn't support the notion that what you see is what you should believe. And so the state did that. They went and hired Dr. Tobin, right? a pulmonologist. Now, despite all of the information that Dr. Baker has concluded or found during the actual autopsy, Dr. Tobin concluded emphatically that Mr. Floyd's death was the result of positional asphyxia. Right? The pressure of the, of the asphalt, the pressure of the of the weight of the officers, the positions, all of this resulted in hypoxia, low oxygen to the brain. Mr. Floyd was asphyxiated through positional asphyxia. Remember at the beginning of my remarks, I asked you to perform an honest assessment of all of the evidence in the case. And I'm gonna to submit to you that with no other witness should this be more carefully analyzed. I want to illustrate two brief things that Dr. Tobin testified about, and I want to illustrate how I think that these demonstrate a bias, because you still have to consider an expert witness in the context of bias. I'm going to call it the finger and knuckle testimony and the toe lifting testimony. You may remember this slide. Right? That this slide shows George Floyd pushing his fingers against the street to lift his shoulder off the street. That he was pushing his knuckles against the tire. He described what he interpreted this was basically Mr. Floyd trying to push himself up into onto his left side onto his left side to free the right lung to help him breathe. 
Look at the timestamp of the photos taken from the body-worn camera here. They were taken at 8.19.35, 15 seconds after Mr. Floyd was placed on the ground. Yet Dr. Tobin that he also explained that Mr. Floyd went on to breathe for an additional 5 minutes and 51 seconds until he took his last breath at 8.25. He neglects the fact that at this point, this is the point we just saw, when Mr. Floyd is taken out of the car and he is actually in the side recovery position for about the first two minutes of this nine minutes and 29 seconds. Not moving. Mama, mama, mama. Mama, one of the front pouches. Mama, on my right side back. Mama, mama. Ah, ah. Is he mentioning oh, pouring raw shit? I don't think he has, bro. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. Shit's loud as fuck. I'm gonna take it out. I'm gonna hold right now. I'm gonna return the call. Please, I love you. I'm gonna take these headphones off before it's like in the phones. Yes, one thousand. Trovo alone, another 500 plus on YouTube. I can't breathe for nothing, man. It's no good, man. Ah, 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 can get up on the sidewalk, please. One side of the road, please. Ah, ah, ah. My face get up bad. Here, should we get his legs up? Oh, my God. I didn't understand. My face is gone. I never have understood that. Can't feel my face. How can you take... This illustrates how you can take a single nanosecond of time in this arrest. You can have this testimony that he's pushing his body up to try to breathe, right? But when you look at the evidence compared to the rest of the evidence, what do you really see? You see a person who is on his side, being held in the side recovery position. I like that song, LMP. His hand is touching the ground and the tire at times. You cannot take a single isolated frame and reach any conclusions because much like the use of force, the cause of death has to be considered within the totality of the circumstances. And then you may remember, you may remember this testimony. This is Officer Chauvin's foot off the ground. And he described how at this precise moment, Officer Chauvin was applying 91.5 pounds of pressure to the neck of Mr. Floyd. So let's look at this time in the context of the other evidence. Did anybody even see the toe come up off the ground? I mean, was it 
a half a second, a quarter of a second, right? But when you take a single incident, a frame, a single frame, and you add the drama, and you make all of the assumptions, right? Officer Chauvin's body weight, Mr. Floyd's EELV, he's the only person who calculated the EELV based upon the presumptions of health, based upon studies, based upon theory, all of this information. You can, you can put this into a single frame, but you have to analyze the evidence in the broader context. You can also see during the clip that Officer Chauvin actually re is sort of adjusted forward and touches this car, right? You can make a lot of in informed decisions about how is he shifted. If I'm shifting my weight this way, majority of my weight is shifting on my left foot. If I'm this way, it's on my right foot. You watch this video and you can see the dynamic shifting. And you can see the placement of the toes, right? The toe tucked under helps an officer maintain his weight or helps any person maintain their weight. But a toe flopped over to the side, it's a little harder to balance. You cannot take a single frame and draw conclusions. You have to look at the totality. And remember, he said he spent 150 hours analyzing this thing. His entire testimony is filled with theory, speculation, assumption. Do not let yourselves be misled by a single still frame image. Put the evidence in its proper context. Okay. We have to talk about the toxicology. So the call dropped somehow. Again. Not and this guy was going door to door asking for change. This was an overdosed like, death, right? It's a multifactorial process, as Dr. Baker said. So we have to look at what role does the toxicology play in this case. And you need, because again, we had Dr. Eisenschmidt who testified that he found that the levels of uh, Tobin got BGFO. and methamphetamine were more consistent with this DUI population. But what do we know about the actual toxicology? There were 11 nanograms per milliliter of fentanyl and 0.19 nanograms of methamphetamine. Okay, now. Okay. Those are the principal two, is that the byproduct of nope. methamphetamine, which is amphetamine, was not reported at the levels. Doesn't mean it wasn't technically there, but it was not reported. So it's below threshold reporting values, which, signif which signifies that the, the methamphetamine use was recent. Hence, in Dr. Baker's death certificate, he included the recent methamphetamine use because there was no amphetamine. The history of Mr. Floyd's use of controlled substances, it's, it is significant. It's, it's not a character problem. 
Millions of Americans suffer from opioid, the opioid crisis, right? I mean, it is, a, it is a true crisis that this country is facing. We gotta help it is significant to understand the history, not just as much as the long-term history, but his long-term history provides us with insight on how his body physically reacts to methamphetamine. High-flying ambulance ride. Opioid use, I should say. Opioid use within the context of a law enforcement encounter. We know from the testimony of Courtney <laughs> Ross that Mr. Floyd struggled. Jacob said, I meant to say, become we know he had Maronite. Been using controlled substances. Thank you for your for service. Something. Thank you as well. We know that on May 6th of 2019, during an encounter with the police, said BLM Mr. Got Floyd the hats. ingested some <laughs> controlled substances, said they were Percocets. Oh my God. He was up. startled by the police, like he was in this case. Officer drew his gun in that case, too. And that resulted in a blood pressure of 216 over 160. I mean, that's not just high. That is skyrocketing high. We know from Miss Ross that in March of 2020, they purchased some pills that were supposed to be Percocets, an opioid. But they were clearly knockoffs. She described that. They were clearly knockoffs. She described how those pills made her feel. Here we feel go. He is mentioning it. Up all like it, I said. Right? The introduction of the methamphetamine. We know from Miss Ross that in March of 2020, Mr. Floyd was seen for a drug overdose. She described how he felt in that instance. She said his whole body hurt. His stomach hurt. We know based on, again, for Miss Ross, that he was clean and sober for some time while they were in quarantine. We know that Miss Ross again described taking about a week before a similar pill to the one that they had back in March. Kept her up again all night, right? She said she felt like she was gonna die. We know, again, for Miss Ross, that those pills were purchased from Maury's Hall. She described going to a hotel while Mr. Floyd went into the hotel. She was on the phone with him. She heard Maury's Hall's voice. We know Mr. Floyd was with Maury's Hall on May 25th, 2020. We heard from the store clerk, Christopher Martin. He described Mr. Floyd as being high. His responses were delayed, right? He may have been, you know, standing around. He may have been standing up. He may have been able to have communications. But Mr. Martin clearly described him as being high. We heard from Shawanda Hill that when they got back into the car, right, they had a conversation for a few minutes, and suddenly Mr. Floyd fell asleep. All of these things become important. That he had trouble, they had trouble waking him up. She called her daughter for a ride because they couldn't wake her up, wake Mr. Floyd up. They couldn't keep him awake. We heard how Mr. Martin described Mr. Floyd when he went to back to the car and how he was, oh no, and he wasn't speaking, right? 
but he kept putting his head back and shaking his head. We know from Peter Chang's bodyboard camera that Maurice Hall also described that Mr. Floyd was dozing off. He got Thank you, White Rays. I appreciate that, man. Right. We know that whether Mr. Floyd was chewing gum while he was in the court, the store, Bad optics. we can also see he was Maybe, I don't know. It was epic, though. Right. He bought a banana. He bought a banana? Oh, my God. He bought a banana. Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. He bought a banana. That's exactly what he did though. So we know when we look at this picture, right, <laughs> he just had to there's drop something that in, in Mr. Floyd's mouth. Is it gum? Banana, perhaps. Is it banana? <laughs> is it drugs? Nobody oh. knows. Right? Probably drugs, though. But regardless Probably of whether drugs. it's drugs, bananas, or gum in this incident, <laughs> we know that there were drugs, bananas, in the or car, gum. Right? We know that there were drugs the in the game car. show. We know those pills were later tested to be Shrugs, a bananas or gum. Of methamphetamine and fentanyl. Oh my god. That's what was in Mr. Floyd's system. It's relevant because it's what was in his system. <laughs> this fall on ABC. <laughs> we know <laughs> drugs, bananas, or gum hosted by James Corden his hands were behind his back it would have been physically impossible to put anything in his mouth at that point and we know that in the squad car 320 were pills we know those pills were analyzed we know those pills consisted of fentanyl and methamphetamine. We know that Mr. Floyd's salivary DNA was found on those pills. How much fentanyl does it take to kill? Big Kang again, thank you. This is from the Minneapolis Police Department. 830 runner, thank you as well. He says, thanks for hosting this, Ralph. Three You're milligrams. welcome, sir. Thank you Smaller guys for watching. Than a penny. Thanks for watching it with me and the support as well. This is from the squad car. You can look at these pictures closely. Making this a good livelihood, I appreciate it. There is a video of Mr. Floyd. Regulator, Mr. Floyd thank you. Is, is being subdued by and restrained by the police. Mr. Maurice Hall reaches into his bag. He's looking through the windows. We watch it. And then he throws something. All right? Much appreciated, O.C. Oh, he tossed a little something? 
we know that Mr. Floyd had drugs in his mouth. We know that some percentage of that would have been consumed and absorbed into his system. We don't know how much he took before, right? We don't know when he took an earlier dose in relation because fentanyl had actually started to metabolize in his, so fentanyl was longer before. For the medical experts to minimize the timing and the amount of illicit drugs that were found in Mr. Floyd's bloodstream it is just simply incredible to me. It is incredible to me. Every single doctor testified that relevant to the, that the absence of signs of fentanyl uh, overdose weren't present because he was alert, he was talking. But it ignores what Shawanda Hill and Maurice Hall says, right? That he was all of a sudden asleep and difficult to wake up. It ignores the fact that the combination of these two drugs, methamphetamine is a powerful stimulant. Fentanyl is a powerful sedative. They use it for surgeries. Every single doctor dismissed outright. No, no, nothing about this case. Live. No, it was only 0.19 grams, nanograms per milliliter. It's such a small amount of methamphetamine in his system. It's a vasoconstrictor. It causes the heart's arteries to constrict even tighter. Doesn't matter. Every single doctor just brushed it aside, said it would have no effect. I ask, would any of those doctors prescribe illicit methamphetamine to their patients? Would they give it to their children? Would they give it to their elderly parents with a 90% blockage of the coronary artery, the right coronary artery? I guarantee you the answer is no. Dr. Rich is the only one who said, I would never recommend to my patients that they take any amount of illicit methamphetamine. It is preposterous. Thank you, Max. <laughs> that it is a preposterous notion that this did not come into play here. A half hour break for lunch. Oh, I, I don't want to interrupt your argument, but Thank you. I apologize. It's wow. Members of the jury, 30 minutes for lunch, please. Thank you. Damn, they have to get him. Wow, they did just kind of interrupt his Lou, phone. I mean, this has to be unprecedented. Obviously, no one expected the defense to take two hours and 30 minutes at this point. Yeah, we're at two hours and 34 minutes. And the judge actually had to interrupt him to let the jury have a break. And the judge has to kind of keep a straight face when he does that, so he so he's not uh, he can't reprimand uh, the defense in front of the jury because that wouldn't be kosher in, in court. Um, but yeah, here we are, just a, a sudden 30-minute lunch break in the 
hopefully toward the end of the closing argument. Wow. And, and again, we have that no idea crazy. how much longer we expect Eric Nelson to go. Is, is that, that right? Has that well, ever he happened? saying that, you know, he, was, he had a few other things to get to before getting to cause of death, and it, it sounded like that's what he was arguing there toward the end. So he seemed to be getting closer to the end of it. However, I mean, for the first two hours, how many times did you hear him say the phrase, a reasonable police officer? Mm -hmm. It really seemed to me like he was focusing in on the reasonable police wow. officer standard. The prosecution's standard. And that, as long and as fuck. To me, though. it almost was a change of strategy compared to what we were expecting because we were expecting you know, everything to be argued as to cause of death. But I guess you have to remember that any one of these charges, if the jury was convinced that that it was a reasonable use of force, any one of these charges would have to be an acquittal. Okay. So I guess it's, it's a strategy to try to, you know, get not guilty on across the board rather than make an argument that might lead to a split verdict. All right. Uh, strategy indeed, whether, uh, <laughs> whether what the jury thinks of it or not, I, I don't know. But let's, uh, let's bring in some of our, uh, our lawyer experts. That Sounds we good. Yeah, we have A.L. Brown ready, defense attorney here in the Twin Cities. A.L. Brown, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me again, Lou. And uh, share your thoughts now that we're uh, two hours and 34 minutes into the closing argument by Defense Attorney Eric Nelson. Well, uh, this is a cruelty that the jury won't soon forget, uh, <laughs> and that might frighten the jury pool uh, of all of Minnesota. It's, this is uncalled for. Uh, I thought he started <laughs> off incredibly strong. I thought he had an organized theme and theory about a reasonable officer. I thought uh, for, for at least the first 30 minutes of it, uh, that my predictions about um, the, the state's closing argument being so long and ineffective um, was going to prove true. But he undid it. Uh, he undid it. I have never seen in my practice uh, or never heard of uh, in anyone else's practice a judge having to interrupt a closing argument because it's going too long. There is a jury there that has to do something with the arguments that you're making. And when you so, go for I do think long. there's an argument that maybe he went too long, but I don't really think so in this case. He was kind of methodically going through the whole case, tearing it apart. Um, I could see the judge breaking, but to me, there would be a better way to like just signal to him, "Hey, we need to take a break," or um, you know, just break in. I don't know. It seemed a little abrupt. It seemed a little abrupt and kind of brisk. Uh, whereas it could have been handled a little bit differently. I actually understand maybe they do need to take a break, uh, but it could have been handled differently. Plus, I think Nelson was about to be done if they would have just said or got word to him, hey, you got like 10 minutes, 15 minutes. It would have been fine. But. Of evidence that he was able to produce uh, during the course of the trial. He's using every single piece of evidence he can. I mean, uh, who would have thought the defense's argument would be uh, it wasn't the Officer Chauvin's uh, uh, knee. Uh, don't look at his knee, look at his toes. Uh, who who would have thought that that would have come out with any Yeah, it didn't really break his momentum. I don't know, um, man. This argument. Is, but I think he's been able to, to make some, score some points on the, on the prosecution uh, in that fashion. Overall, it's no different than what we could expect uh, from any officer-involved shooting. The claim is always officer-involved killing, I should say. The claim will always be this was a fast-moving event. And I think Jerry Blackwell is going to come back in closing and say this was as, as about as a fast-moving and quickly developing set of events as a watching paint dry. 
There were nine minutes. There were no split seconds among them, as he said in his opening statement. Uh, he had every opportunity to do something different, minute by minute, and he didn't do it. But overall, right, strategy-wise, I think he, uh, Brown, we've heard enough from uh, you. he's suffering the same problem that the state has suffered, but substantively, he is making some progress. Okay. And well, I, I agree with that last part. Um, and I can see, I can understand people who say it's too long, actually. But I thought he was kind of matching the prosecution, uh, sort of, you know what I mean? A30 Runner says, to be fair, the judge interrupted because he wants something from Wendy's before it burns down. <laughs> uh, going above and. Uh, I'm about to tweet that too. Why is this? Okay. Yeah, I, I can't imagine the stress they're under. And so it's easy for me to sit here and be critical, and I want to do that. But, but the fact of the matter is, uh, there's a jury. I mean, they've got to see that the jury is sitting there watching this and wondering when will it end. That is the only question. The other thing I'll say about uh, uh, Mr. Nelson's closing is he has carefully avoided that nine minutes and 49 seconds or whatever the, the, the right number is. He's got to get to that. I mean, you know, you know to the extent that the public has already accepted uh, placing Mr. Floyd on the ground or the prone position and all of that talk, he's got to get to why his client didn't get off of Mr. Floyd's neck. That's where he's got to get to. I, I think that's what the jury wants to know. What is the rationalization for the continued use of force on a dead man over $20? I feel like I have like 46 questions to ask you, but the first one would be, is there any issue with the judge interrupting the closing arguments? Is that something that we have to worry about that's going to come back uh, at some point that the defense is going to say this this ruined my case? I, 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 we would call that an invited error if it were an okay. error. I don't think it's an error at all. Whatever the judge did in that moment was an act of mercy for all of the public and to for that we owe him a great deal of gratitude first of all can i just say i just i, I love having you on because uh you you just get right to the point and i absolutely love that uh let me go back to a, a little bit uh, of some of the defense's uh, closing arguments well, with the amount of video that he used what do you think he was trying to do there because it almost seemed like we're watching this man die again and i, I was just wondering how he thought it helped his case as opposed to the state yeah, I questioned that. I think he had some very tough decisions to make. Every time he played the video, and there was one particular point where he left Mr. Floyd's face that was yes, just yes, an agony yes. on the screen for an extended period of time, and I thought, my God, take that down. You are representing the defendant. You do not represent the state. Uh, that is a horrible thing to leave up for an extended period of time if you have uh, Mr. Uh, Nelson's job. Uh, but he, he, he had to use the video as it stood. He, he couldn't mute it. Uh, that would have raised a significant defense. And every time he played the video to make a point about what Officer Chauvin was doing that was reasonable, it highlighted exactly why what he was doing was problematic. So, Al, I'm wondering also your thoughts on this strategy to go so heavy on the reasonable police officer standard for the majority of, of this long closing argument so far before getting to any of the medical evidence, which is kind of what we expected based on, you know, questioning throughout the trial. Well, I, I, I think that is his his effort to try to bring Chauvin back into the mainstream. I mean, the, the state's job is to say, uh, as they have said, you know, wondrously, that this is an, a pro-police prosecution. Nobody wants uh, a, a bad cop out there. Uh, that's bad for the cops. He's trying to say, no, my guy's not bad. He's following the training. And you know, the sad part about it, if I may, 
is that in part he's right. Part of the training has to change. And we learned that in this case, but we probably knew it beforehand, but just didn't care enough to change it. But he's taking you know those what? nuggets. All right, shut up. Now, Merciful Max, thank you again for that. Said he had a whole new respect for us after that weekend. I understand. I won't read the whole thing, like you said, uh, but I appreciate it. Clifford C. Clavin says, let's be real. The New York Times has a list of all these jurors Chauvin's getting life. Well, I mean, I... Uh, that's any different or more informed. Can't wait till you back down to Florida. Who kind of gathered around this event and said, hey, man, you're killing him. Get off of him. He can't breathe. I don't know what they teach in the academy uh, that informs an officer's ability to, uh, to add more information uh, to that equation. So that's something for policymakers to start having a serious conversation about. Do we want officers defining what's reasonable? For, poli- for policing communities that are affected by their definition. And so, A.L., I'm reading through the, uh, the pool report now, and uh, sure enough, there's some notes about jurors uh, appearing fidgety, resting their face in their hands, but at the same time taking notes throughout Eric Nelson's uh, closing argument there. Uh, what, just uh, give us a preview. What, after they finish this, this abrupt lunch break here, what what's Eric Nelson got to do and what does Jerry Blackwell have to do for the state in rebuttal? Well, uh, I think this is this is going to be somewhat uh, humbling uh, for Mr. Nelson. He's going to have to realize that uh, I hope he doesn't take it as license uh, that they've got fuel for lunch and have had a break and he can go another hour. Uh, I, I think he's going to he's a smart man. I think he's going to understand what the message that the judge was sending when he uh, interrupted his closing statement. For Jerry Blackwell, what it means now is that he can't go as long as he really needs to be surgical. He really needs to get right to the point. He needs to call out what he finds ridiculous, what he finds unacceptable. And I wouldn't even waste a whole lot of time pointing to the evidence to make the point. I would encourage the jury to use their eyes and their common sense. Help lift some of the burden of all of this minutia that's in this evidence by telling them at the end of the day, rely on your common sense. You can trust your eyes. All right, A.L. Brown, we thank you so much for your candid analysis. Nelson's about to come out and take a knee. To us throughout this trial. Thank you. And we'll talk, toss it to a quick break here, and we'll be back with more coverage. Uh, a quick break. Well, what are we going to do? Hmm. Also, Law and Crime Network, their whole stream just went down. I don't know what the fuck happened there. That was kind of... Looks like the shit's down, too. I don't know. Kind of a tough break. Let's see here. Mario Party. <laughs> uh, 8.30 runner. I appreciate that. I think I got everybody caught up. Let me look through here. We're also up on killstream.live slash entropy, killstream.live slash tip, patreon.com slash the Ralph Retort, where, actually, I need to post this episode that I recorded last night with Rambot. I'll probably go ahead and put... I thought th- this would be done by now, honestly. I really did, and I think everybody did, um, judging by the, what they're saying. But, I, you know, the prosecution had their time, too. So, I mean, it wasn't like... Um, they literally had, like, two hours themselves. Uh, I didn't originally think Nelson was going to go this long, but honestly, uh, sitting there watching it, I thought he was uh, making a lot of inroads uh, with what he was saying, so... Um, I don't think it was um, 
it was talking just to hear himself talk, which is what is kind of what it seemed like with the prosecution at certain points, um, especially towards the end. <laughs> All right, just finish up. Uh, Nelson seemed to be, you know, had an agenda with almost everything he was saying. You know what I mean? Like it was words used for effect, even though there were a lot of words used. So, yeah, he's been hitting all the evidence. And he was going along with Chauvin, like taking you on a ride along, kind of put it through um, through the eyes of Chauvin, right? Uh, where maybe it's not, and you didn't see, or at least they didn't focus on, I don't know if they ever played the part where George Floyd's before just completely walling out, foaming at the mouth, kicking, you know. Um, you maybe saw it here and there, but uh, not with that sort of focus. So I thought that did kind of, you know, show you this guy was this guy was out of control, literally foaming at the mouth. Um, you know, Chauvin was kind of just keeping him under control until the medics could get there. Um, and instead of portraying, oh, he's passing out as some major admission, it was more of, he said, you know, the officers were taking into account his well-being the whole time. It was more of they expected the, the – and then the, I thought this was genius. He took that one chick um, – Local mud shark there took her, whatever her name was. I don't know what her name Oh, Genevieve Hansen. That was her name. Um, so he took her and her testimony about, um, you know, oh, that's just bullshit. You know, they should be there in three minutes. Da, 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 da. That's my experience. Uh, and used that in his clothes. Like, well, yeah, the officers were expecting them to be there three to five minutes. Where were they? And, you know, they got this unhinged guy there. They can't just let him up because – just moments ago, he was acting outrageous. He's on drugs. He may, who knows how many he's ingested, um, and he's out of control. It's like I got to keep this guy. Got to keep this guy here. It wasn't. It wasn't a punitive act. It was. A, it was an act of protection. And then he weaved it into all the bystanders. Uh, mentions uh, Chauvin shaking his 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 can of mace up. Right, like they were encircling him. Uh, I thought he did a pretty good job. Honestly, maybe he did go too long. I don't know. Uh, I mean, obviously, you don't want the judge interrupting you like that. So, it's, I mean, that's not great. Um, but I don't think – I don't really think the judge handled that correctly, even though, I'm, in general, I haven't uh, haven't hated the judge or anything. But uh, I don't know. I, thought, I would think there would be a better way, even if you absolutely just felt like you had to stop the trial right now. Um, I would think there would be a better way to do it uh, a little bit more optically. That seemed – that seems almost like unfair, honestly. I, I know some people in chat feel the same way. I mean, I don't know. Just interrupting the guy's closing argument. He didn't seem to have for, for very much longer to go. I was actually sitting here thinking, though, because um, they, they, you know, they're always militant about stopping for lunch. And so I was sitting here thinking, oh, maybe the jurors <clears throat> got a little snack during uh, the 20-minute break in between uh, after the prosecution did their closing argument, but maybe they didn't. I don't know. Um, I don't see how hard it is to fucking do that. Um, fucking eat a sandwich and come right back. Like, what the fuck is wrong? Like, shit is so dumb. Uh, let's see. Somebody says, Ralph, you're wrong. The judge did the defense a favor by making Anderson's most powerful. Oh, shit. Uh, most powerful words his last. I'm not sure. Let me see. It seems like I'm... Oh, fuck. I don't know. I'll see. I forgot what number that was. I'm looking at that number. I'm like, I think I know that number, but I'm not sure. Uh, let's see. One Step Too Far says, It's very unconventional. That's why I'm wondering if the stream went down 
because the judge cleared court. Um, judge having a three-course lunch? No, I don't think so. They went to commercial break. Uh, that's what I think happened there. Uh, let's see. Also, what is that? Uh, what is that? I think I thought I saw that. No, somebody saw that. Uh, oh, okay, I see it, I see it. Yeah, that's my aunt. All right. I need to add that to my context. <laughs> I was like, who is that? Okay. All right, I got it now. I was like, I know that number. Hold on. Uh, it was my aunt calling me, so I had to add that. Sorry, I know that was unorthodox. <laughs> For some reason, I hadn't put it in my phone. All right, so... Um, are they just going to stay on a break the whole fucking time? It was 30 minutes and it stopped streaming. It's a 30 minute break. How long do you think we've been on break so far? Maybe like 15? I don't know. Uh, Oregon Perma Mass story. Oh, you know what? Actually, no, there was something uh, somebody sent. Fuck. Oh, yeah, I remember. Let me pull it off Telegram. I saw this earlier. Uh, oh, yeah, Milwaukee County Judge Brett Bloom arrested on child pornography live bond hearing. Remember that guy? He's, he did a lot of the drag queen story time stuff. Uh, well, he had his bond hearing. Your Honor, may it please the court and counsel. Let me start with the cash bail. Uh, I respectfully uh, believe that the bond should be a signature bond in this case, and I'll Take my reasons quite simply. My client, as identified in the uh, in the report, the court reviewed a signature bond. They want a signature bond for child porn, reams and reams of it. Has no prior record. Um, he is a resident. He is not only a resident of the state of Wisconsin. He owns two residences here. He has substantial ties to the community. How many children did he molest in those residences? He has. He is in a marriage, and he has children, and he is committed to them, and. Regardless of the, if you will, the seriousness of the charges or even the potential penalty, the presumption of innocence uh, is still part of this proceeding. But more importantly, uh, the simple question would be, why is he any different than anybody else who was for the first time accused of uh, a child porn uh, pornography offense in this county? Uh, those are cases that ordinarily result in a signature bond absent evidence of attempts to flee. There are none of those here. So as a practical matter, I'm prepared to address some more, but I don't think that let's put it this way. By the way, you can see him in the top uh, right corner. Yeah, they got him labeled Judge Brett Tablom there. He's a professional. Uh, he, owes, he does own a home. He has no particular place to go but here. The state hasn't suggested any indication that he would go anywhere. And so the imposition of $2,500 cash bond is hardly the kind of anger that would keep somebody here uh, who is as smart and as experienced and as uh, professional as he is. On the other hand, uh, there's nothing about a signature bond that is going to cause him to suddenly up and leave with uh, leave his family, leave his extended family, uh, and leave the support group he has among his friends. He has a, a wide group of support, and that won't change after today. Okay. Let's see. A signature bond does not require a defendant to make a cash deposit or put up any collateral with the court. Known also as a recognizance bond, recognizance bond, the bond requires the defendant to sign a paper, basically, anyway. I've had one before. It's no big deal. You just sign a piece of paper that lets you walk out. 
I had one not that long ago, actually. Judge Brett Arblom was given a signature bond, by the way, uh, after that uh, argument. We mentioned that on the kill stream. I guess the footage is just now coming out. So, as far as I could tell, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, that's. Uh, he did walk. He did walk on a signature bond awaiting his day in court. Sure, they won't take it easy on a fellow judge. Fellow friend, catch my drift there. All right, now, let's see. Oh, what's this? Touch me like that. I fucking dare you, pussy-ass fucking bomb. I swear I'll slap the fuck out of you, you fucking pussy-ass fucking bitch. Damn it. That's That apparently is a leak from the judge's chambers right now. Um, I'm hoping Nelson doesn't catch a charge. <clears throat> oh, man. Breaking audio here on the on the court retort. <laughs> Horsecock Johnson over on killstream.live slash entropy says, did the cock suck actually say that that ain't kosher? Kosher? It actually says kosher. I don't know. I didn't hear that. Oh, Chad, no. He's so mad. <laughs> Oh, God. 10,000. We're just sitting here waiting for CARE 11 and turn it back on. We got like 1,500 here ourselves uh, and have for a large portion of the day uh, just waiting for the trial to kick back up. Um, I mean, I'm expecting maybe Nelson to come out, do another 10 minutes, kick it over to Blackwell, who I hope is succinct, uh, at least get done by within the next hour, I would think. But... That'll be relying on them actually coming back when they say they will, which is pretty rare. Although they're not as bad as some courtrooms. They they tend to be somewhat close to the time they say, um, but uh, easily not right on it. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> Nelson threatening to give out knees. Yeah, this is middle of the day. Pretty good turnout, I would say. Everybody just chilling, watching the trial. My phone buzzing. I don't know what for. Oh, man. Who knows? Oh, I see. It's fancy. All right. Now, is there another? Let me see. I'm going to have some more. Let me, I, guess I'll, I guess I'll dip into the suggest stories here on Discord, which is a great place. If you want me to cover something, guess, what's a, guess where is a great place to put it? This right here. Oh, my God. What in the fuck? Oh, is this? Oh, this is... It happened. Oh, what is this? Oh, I don't want to play that. I thought I'd get people too pissed. I don't know about that. I'll get them too angry. That'll give me a toss violation. I don't know. Nah, they're not going to do that one step. Fuck no. They're not going to recess till tomorrow. The jury's going to get the case today. <laughs> There's zero chance they're doing that. It's only 2.30 in fucking... It's only 2.30 right now where they're at. They still got three hours solid of time. I mean... I don't know. I'd be shocked. I'd be absolutely stunned. I'd be absolutely stunned if they did that. If they do that, I'll just call you the all-time champion. I'll be honest, because that'll be the hellest, biggest prediction I've ever seen. <laughs> Lord Aragon, well... Not ever, but it'll be one of the best. Uh, Lord Aragon, thank you, man. Big dog swinging through. Five gifted subs. 
Thank you, Weepy, as well. Gifted a bunch of subs today. All right, let's Ray see. got a letter from the governor of my state. <clears throat> Dear Barricade Garage, your prior conviction no longer restricts your right to register to vote. You become a notary or be a public servant, serve on a jury. Or hold- By the way, this happened to me too. <laughs> I didn't get the letter though because I moved recently. Maybe that's why I didn't get it. But I checked online and they had restored my voting rights. I just registered to vote uh, again the other day. So uh, I can vote again. Uh, by the way, what was I going to say? I can't remember now. Whatever. Public office. Then it, goes, then it goes on to say, please note, this restoration of your right to vote does not change any of the legal restrictions or requirements imposed by your conviction. Yeah. This action. I swear, is this dude in Virginia? Because that's almost verbatim what it said I'm on. Which, I mean, obviously, you'd rather have the gun rights back anyway. It's I not can be a notary now, though. Yeah, you're right. For the right to ship, Finally. transport, possess, possess, or receive firearms which must be restored by a court in accordance with VA code. Blah. Lene, thank you so much with the big Leon's prank, which I love, by the way. I actually watched those when they come in. Takes over the whole screen there on Trovo.live slash The Ralph Retort. Blah, blah, blah. Also, we're waiting. Also, the trial's coming back for those. Saw a couple people dipping out. Don't dip out. The trial's coming back, uh, and we should be able to say it's finished and in, in, in the hands of the jury today. Now, how long are they going to get to deliberate? Because they still just deliberate during you know normal jury hours. So they might not have that much time to deliberate today. Maybe they'll have enough time to get in and take an initial straw poll or something like that um, and pick the foreman maybe. I don't even know if they'd have time for that. Um I would expect the full deliberations probably start tomorrow and maybe not any deliberations today. All right, let's finish. This is like 17 minutes. Thanks a lot, uh, fucking Northam. He is. He is in Virginia. Oh, shit. No, Nelson's not finished. The judge interrupted him, actually, um, which is startling. Y'all just hopped in here. I just read. I just got... I just got my my civil rights to vote back. The king, the governor, gave me my civil rights to vote back, but not on the firearm. <sighs> and this is what I this is why I understand the the two way argument better than anybody. Well, maybe not better than me. <laughs> a lot, a lot of Republicans, a lot of conservatives. They'll look down on me. They'll talk shit about people like me. They'll say we don't deserve to have a Second Amendment right. Actually, I'll a say lot- this. A lot of people usually try to like advise me on how to get my Second Amendment right back. <laughs> usually on my show. Um, so it's a little bit different. But I've had a lot of people. You can get it back. It's just, you know. Uh, a process, but it's not unprecedented, especially if they go ahead and change the law. I told you guys they put up a bill last year to change what happened to me into not being a felony anymore uh, and to make it a misdemeanor. Uh, and so if that gets changed, because I didn't actually hit the cop and there was no property damage and no injury, um, the, if that gets changed, I could possibly, you know, get my shit restored, honestly. Um, but 
Adam must not guaranteed. Say shit like. But I would say, but, but that's just that's citizens. just that's just been my experience. Most of my viewers and shit, I mean, they'll rag on me and laugh and shit because it's funny. Uh, when I mean, it's kind of like, okay, you fucked yourself, right? Uh, you know, can't get a gun that sucks. But most of the time, they're trying to figure out, you know, how can I get my rights back? To be honest, should have a right to bear arms. And then a lot of those same people will put out videos. And will proclaim that they are pro Second Amendment. I'm here to tell you, they full of shit. I'm here to tell you, they They're full back of shit. Analyzing them, care eleven. I'm not sitting here calling nobody out, but y'all don't understand the Second Amendment right shit better than me. For the simple fact, you're not for the Second Amendment right. You're for your Second Amendment right. There's a big difference. You're not pro two A. You're pro. My right to own and bear <laughs> firearms. So like Clifford C. Clayman just link, linked this. We're going to go back to the trial in a, in a minute. Somebody linked me that. That's why I was playing it. Uh, I don't know. Was it you? She linked this too. Ah, ah, ah. Yo, I'm shooting all my ops on sight. And if you got a best run up lightning cloud, some the originals break your necks. No, no, no. I'm not going to. What are we? testimony which he thinks he, he, he super chatted me that what is that i don't even know what that is is that just him freestyling separate the body from the no, it's not i can't i can't play that. have a lot to work with you'll pick something and you say okay here's the bullet what is that guy's name though Hold on, let, me, let me go ahead and say his name uh barricade garage that's his name somebody's been trying to get me to get him on the show was that you cliff i see a couple people want him on the show the best expert um, and here are three places where we think he was wrong. Maybe he would have. Posting? I don't even know what he's saying. Yeah, that's really. a great point, Doug. That's because the jury might be thinking that Dr. Tobin was They're the most credible person on? that we heard from. I mean, he seems cool. And so now all of a sudden, Eric Nelson is trying to poke some holes. Are you surprised? A fellow felon as well. So I mean, you know. Well, I thought he did more um, with the timeline than I expected him to do. I, I mean, I, I think I've said on this program before, I, I didn't know what he was going to do with it. And I'm what not he against did was watching say, well, the video. Okay. I mean, it just doesn't really fit to watch like a lot of freestyle raps. He was talking about gun rights and shit. That kind of fit though. That's all the stuff that a reasonable police officer would take into account. Um, I, I, you know, listen, I think that'll all be done uh, undone when the nine minutes and 29 second tape, uh, will be played by Jerry Blackwell at the end. But nonetheless, I have to say, I thought he did more with that than I thought he could have. And does Eric Nelson's closing change in your mind what Jerry Blackwell will do with his rebuttal? No, I, I, that's why I said this morning, I think they, they kind of knew where he was going to go. Um, and uh, I expect that they have, um, have uh, prepared for that. And so uh, Blackwell will be the one who will take on the biggest things. Um, and he will, I, I predict he'll take on cause of death first Thank and then you, he'll Cliff, get to the, the tape and, and I'll play, with play the it towards tape. the end. Um, I think that's where he wants to end. Um, and he'll have to be careful. You know, one of the, one of the trial lawyers, uh, nightmares is coming on right after lunch. Um, cause jurors are notoriously sleepy after lunch, um, and all that. So Jerry's in a, in a tough spot, uh, in order to keep everybody awake and everybody's attention. Hey, Doug, one thing a lot of our viewers have been asking us is why did Eric Nelson, why is Eric Nelson playing so much of the video? If the thought is, is that the video helps the prosecution, he's obviously played yeah. some, some clips that shows, you know, aggression, 
But on the other hand, he played a lot of clips where they were holding down George Floyd as well. Yeah, I think he was trying to make a point with each of those things and 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 trying to breathe a little humanity into uh, uh, to Chauvin um, as he was doing it. You know, he's he, one minute after he's on the ground, he's calling uh, uh, the paramedics, et cetera, et cetera. I, I mean, he was doing what he could to set up the, the defense to the nine minute, 29 seconds, which I don't think is going to work. Hey, Doug, this is looking ahead a little bit. If there is a conviction on, on any of the counts um, in Minnesota, there are sentencing guidelines. It's something that a lot of people aren't completely aware of. And uh, the judge would have to sentence within these guidelines unless there are aggravating factors. And you know what, Doug, this will be a good thing for us to talk about uh, later on because it sounds like they're going back to court. So let's head back in there now. Uh-oh, here we go. Let's go. Apologize again. I promise I'll try to speed things up here again. So, damn, let's try to fuck my boy over. Anybody technical issue? Oh man, they fucked up his tag. We'll just go off notes <laughs> instead of the PowerPoint. Before the break, we were talking about the controlled substances and the role that they uh, were, were, the levels that they were found in, the role that they may have applied. Damn, was, oh, uh, straight to uh, notes now. Contributed to Mr. Floyd's death. They broke his flow. Suggesting to you that it is, again, this death needs to be looked at. Mr. Floyd's death needs to be looked at as Dr. Baker describes a multifactorial process. This is the way the human body works. The heart beats, the lung breathes, the blood circulates, the brain thinks, the brain controls all of our movements, right? All of this. And to simply come in and say, this particular substance or these combinations of substances when taken in con combination with each other, when taken in combination with a, of a person who has blockage in the heart, substantial, significant blockage in the heart. Did they try to sabotage them, We know chat? that these drugs play a particular role in, the, in, in how the Press blood Press 1 for sabotage, 2 for no. To just poo-poo it, it and say it has nothing to do with anything. It's just really a preposterous notion. Yet Dr. Baker, Dr. Fowler... And Dr. Thomas like all have all certified deaths 
at levels less yeah. than 11 I don't know, it's nanograms hard to do now, per milliliter or 19 nanograms or combination, right? These deaths have been certified on that basis alone. And it didn't necessarily contain any of the other issues that were confronting Mr. Floyd on that day. Likewise, again, every other doctor that has testified has gone to great lengths to dismiss the role of Mr. Floyd's heart disease and hypertension in this case. Forensic pathologists define coronary artery disease resulting in death it can, death can occur with 70 to 75% blockage. That is sufficient to cause the, a person's death. Every pathologist who testified in this case has indicated likewise that they have certified deaths with those types of blockage and attributed it to the coronary artery disease. Yet here again, this has played zero role. Dr. Rich testified Mr. Floyd had a healthy heart. Coronary heart disease, not relevant, according to the state. Hypertensive disease, not relevant. Drugs acting to further constrict an already heart, diseased heart, not relevant. Adrenaline coursing through Mr. Floyd's body, not relevant. What does adrenaline do? It further constricts the arteries, right? Adrenaline from the paraganglioma wasn't there, didn't happen, played no, no role. They just want you to ignore significant medical issues that presented to Mr. Floyd. And the failure of the state's experts to acknowledge any possibility, any possibility at all, that any of these other factors in any way contributed to Mr. Floyd's death defies medical science and it defies common sense and reason. Now, Dr. Tobin describes the death of Mr. Floyd essentially, as I understand again, to hypoxia, low oxygen resulting uh, in brain, in going to the brain, low oxygen to the brain. Dr. Fowler also ascribes the death to a hypoxic death, but that the heart was the, was the muscle that did not get the oxygen resulting in a sudden cardiac arrhythmia. The reasons that Dr. Fowler dismissed the notion of brain hypoxia are because number one, hypoxia of the brain results in certain observable symptoms. The brain demands more oxygen, right? It takes 20% of our oxygen to function the brain, even though it's one of the, it's, it's a smaller percentage of our body. It is the most sensitive to the loss of oxygen, and it reveals a progressive set of symptoms. Confusion, which was not exhibited, right? Because if, if you compare the testimony about how, whether Mr. Floyd was intoxicated, well, he didn't exhibit any confusion, right? Restlessness, not exhibited. Shortness of breath Holy. It was complained of, but that is also a sensation that can tip. be caused by a sudden cardiac arrhythmia. Said they are 100 trying Visual to fuck with changes, the defense. Not complained of. Incoherent speaking. Not complained of. When someone is experiencing hypoxia to the brain, as Dr. Tobin stated, you would see an increased ventilation or respiratory rate. 
But Dr. Tobin said it is a completely normal respiratory rate, 22 breaths per minute. The timeline in this case is consistent with a sudden cardiac arrhythmia. At 823 and 58 seconds, Mr. Floyd speaks. I really can't breathe. If you can speak, you have oxygen in your brain. At 824.09, he again verbalizes, please, I can't breathe. On cash app. Indicating at 824.09 that his brain has oxygen and there is no impairment to his airway. 39 seconds later, Mr. Floyd goes limp at 824 and 48. A person can hold their breath for 39 seconds, right? That does not result in hypoxia in 39 seconds. 27 seconds later, according to Dr. Tobin, Mr. Floyd takes his last breath. It's a total of 66 seconds, one minute and six seconds from the time that we know there's enough oxygen in his brain to speak, no occlusion to the airway at that point, 66 seconds to his, from his last word to his last breath. This timeline is consistent with a sudden cardiac arrhythmia. It is not consistent with the longer process of brain hypoxia. Dr. Fowler's final analysis was that Mr. Floyd died from a cardiac arrhythmia due to atherosclerotic and hypertensive cardiovascular disease during restraint by police. Other significant factors, fentanyl intoxication, methamphetamine intoxication, possible CO, carbon monoxide exposure, and the paraganglioma. What role did Mr. Carbon Monoxide play in Mr. Floyd's death? We don't know. Mr. Monoxide? Is it as you again, you trick? Mr. Monoxide? We don't know if the car was emitting carbon, dioxide, carbon monoxide. We don't know. One thing we do know is that it was running. And how can we tell that it was running? Because in the video we watched earlier, when Thomas Lane pulls in that squad car at Cup Foods, he puts it in gear, he takes it out of gear, he puts it in park, he never touches the keys and he gets out. The car was running. I have one last point to make, and I should be fa fairly quick with this. The superseding cause that was discussed. A superseding cause is, an, is a cause that comes after the defendant's acts alters the natural sequence of events and is the sole cause of a result that would not have otherwise occurred. Now, let's look at the medical timeline here. We know that EMS was called initially at code two at 8.20 and 11 seconds. We know that EMS was stepped up to code three at 8.21 and 35 seconds. We know that EMS responded to Cub Foods based on uh, the videos at 8.27 and 27 seconds. We know that EMS called for fire at 20.38.36. It takes approximately three minutes for EMS and the arresting officers to put Mr. Floyd into the ambulance and the ambulance pulls away from Cup Foods at 8.30 and 17 seconds. Fire 
responds to cut foods at 8.32.59. That's four minutes and 15 seconds after they were called. That's pretty close in consideration to the three-minute expectation of Miss yeah, Hansen. But the ambulance had driven several blocks away to 36 and Park, arriving sometime between 8.31 and 8.33. That's one and a half, and we know that because there are two exhibits. 62 and 63 that were introduced. 62 shows one paramedic and Officer Lane in the back. 63 shows two paramedics and Officer Lane in the back. So somewhere between a minute and a half to three minutes to get to 36 and Park where they began the resuscitative efforts. The first air is pumped into Mr. Floyd per Dr. Tobin at 2035.06. That is 10 minutes after Mr. Floyd went unconscious per Dr. Tobin, but it is seven minutes and 46 seconds after EMS responded to cut foods. We ultimately know that the ambulance left uh, 36 and Park at 8.48 and 23 minutes. It arrived at HCMC at 8.53, shortly after 8.53, so it took about five minutes to get from 36th and Park to HCMC. What if you, what would have happened if EMS had started resuscitative efforts right away? What would have happened if rather than driving to 36th and Park, they went to the hospital? They would have been there in that time. I am not suggesting to you I am not suggesting to you that the ambulance paramedics did anything wrong. But they did. <laughs> but it raises the prospect of that continued delay in resuscitation. What if EMS had administered Narcan? We heard that it would not have hurt him and it could have helped him. I'm not blaming the paramedics. More importantly, in this, analysis, in this analysis is it shows that human beings make decisions in highly stressful situations that they believe to be right in the very moment it is occurring. There's lots of what-ifs that could have happened, what could have happened, what should have happened. Lots of them in lots of regards. We have to analyze this case from the perspective of a reasonable police officer at the precise moment with the totality of the circumstances when it comes to the use of force. We have to look at the cause of death to determine did Mr. Floyd die exclusively of asphyxia or were there other or the fuck? were there other contributing factors? that were not the natural result of Mr. Chauvin's acts, right? Things that happened that were set in motion before Mr. Chauvin ever arrived. The drug ingestion, right? The bad heart, the diseased heart, the hypertension. All of these things existed before Mr. Chauvin arrived. The struggle what role did the struggle play? We know, based on a prior incident, that Mr. Floyd's heart was beating at 219 over 160 
in a, in a situation where he was confronted by police and had ingested drugs. He didn't die that day. All of this, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, all of this, when you take into consideration the presumption of innocence, the presumption of innocence and proof beyond a reasonable doubt, I would submit to you that it is nonsense to suggest that none of these other factors had any, any role. That is not reasonable. And when you, as members of the jury, conclude your analysis of the evidence, when you review the entirety of the evidence, when you review the, the law as written, and you conclude it all within this, all within a, a thorough, honest analysis, the state has failed to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. And therefore, Mr. Chauvin should be found not guilty of all counts. There we go. Are we going to take another break before the fucking rebuttal? I hope the jury, there's an issue I need to discuss with the lawyers, so we're going to send you back to your room for probably about five minutes. Uh-oh. Okay. Here we go. I don't know what this is. Uh, I don't know if anybody knows what this is. Good night, Charles. Quiet in the room right now because we're waiting for the jury. They're waiting to leave. for the jury to leave. They, they're probably going to address uh, what Brock talked about a little bit there, yes, which was explain the, this. Uh, that that Eric Nelson was basically trying to say that Chauvin's knee would have to be the only cause, and that these other things couldn't be, you know, a contributing cause to George Floyd's death. And uh, the way that the law says, it says that Chauvin's knee just has to be a substantial cause. Right. Immediately before the court was ready to resume, uh, the state indicated it wanted to talk in chambers, but uh, for a curative instruction, there's no need to go into chambers. What's your motion? Uh, your Honor, the state's going to request... No, you can, you can be seated, but we need you near the microphone. Thank you, Your Honor. Your Honor, uh, the state requests a curative instruction as to the issue of intent. I believe that the, uh, the counsel made a misstatement of law when he indicated and argued that the defendant had to intend to apply unlawful force, as in he had to intend that the force he was applying to be unlawful. That's not a correct statement of the law pursuant to Dorn at 887 Northwest 2nd, uh, 826. Uh, the state need not show that the defendant meant to, meant to or knew that she would violate the law. But that is what Mr. Nelson uh, argued before the jury. And so we're requesting the court give a curative instruction to the jury as follows. That it is not necessary for the state to prove that the defendant intended to act unlawfully, only that the defendant intentionally applied force to another that this application of force was unlawful and that this application of force resulted in bodily harm. I believe which that is a correct statement of the law. Which is contrary to what the court instructed in the first set of instructions. Your Honor, I believe the court's instruction was that the intentional infliction of bodily harm requires the proof that the defendant intentionally applied unlawful force 
to another person without that person's consent and that this act resulted in bodily harm. You did not instruct uh, that the defendant need to intend that his force be unlawful, merely that he uh, intended to apply the force, which was unlawful. I'm going to deny the request for curative instructions. I will reread uh, before the beginning of rebuttal uh, statements of judge and attorneys, which starts at the bottom of page two and goes on to page three, which specifically states that if an attorney's argument contains any statement of the law that differs from the law, I give you disregard the attorney's statement. I'll reread that. Turn over to Mr. Blackwell, who I assume will answer this exact question or this exact issue in his rebuttal. Uh, we do ask uh, the court's guidance on another issue, and that is uh, when Mr. Nelson argued, quote, Mr. Chauvin thought that he was following his training. There is no, you know, there is no testimony from Mr. Chauvin. And uh, he, he didn't argue that they could infer that. He argued that they thought that. Uh, placing that in context puts us in a, in a difficult position in that we can't comment on his failure uh, to testify, but that, that statement is uh, directly at odds uh, with, the, with the evidence in the record. Mr. Nelson, any response? Read the quote, Steve. Excuse me, Mr. So Mr. Sh Mr. Chauvin thought he was following his training. What was the context I said that in? Well, it was in your use of force discussion, and you were talking about a reasonable officer following his training. You indicated that Mr. Chauvin thought he was following his training. I don't recall saying it, Your Honor. I mean, even if you did. Um, it was drowned out by a reasonable officer. I think it's a reasonable inference to draw from the evidence that exists. Um, even his statement to Mr. McMillan uh, essentially was an indirect way of saying he was following his training. It's a reasonable inference for counsel to argue from the evidence. And to respond to that specifically by saying there's no evidence would in fact be commenting on his right to remain silent. So the bind the state is always in, so. But as far as the other issues, you can talk about uh, re-quoting what the uh, elements are on assault in the third degree and also anything else that you think was a misstatement of law. I will read them, the statements of judges and attorneys, if you wish. And actually, before I do that, do you want me to read that? Reread that, or should I? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. I don't want to force it on you, but that would be my is to remind them that any statement of the law that differs from mine should be disregarded. And I would also ask that you reread the, st the uh, instruction on causation because I believe that what Mr. Nelson argued was that the state is required to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the other issues that he spoke about had no effect, right? Had no causal connection. And that, that is not Man, the these law. guys just I'm want not, to stack the deck in every which way possible. Single out that instruction and re-instruct on that. Um, I'm just going to read them the general one that if it differs, and I'm sure Mr. Blackwell is going to point out in great detail how Mr. Nelson misstated that. Yes, Your Honor. All right. Let's bring the jury back. All right. These guys want every fucking advantage, crying to the referees like a true bitch. Clifford C. Clavin, thank you, brother. Principal argument. Gift of the sub. In terms of contradicting the 
the defense argument. I mean, the state made comments about the, essentially about the nonsense of the defense in this case, and it is improper. I know what you're going to say. We'll hold that thought. This is insane. The judge is kind of that letting it get him away from him here on the last day. I, I don't know if he's, like, just ready to go or. Ms. Blackwell, you may, you may get the state's rebuttal. Members of the jury, before Mr. Blackwell begins, I'm going to reread one of the instructions. And that is specifically... That attorneys are officers of the court and it is their duty to make objections they think proper and to argue their client's cause. However, the arguments or other remarks of an attorney are not evidence. If the attorneys or I have made or should make any statement as to what the evidence is that differs from your recollection of the evidence, you should disregard that statement and rely solely on your own memory. If an attorney's argument contains any statement of the law this is that differs from the law I give you, disregard the attorney's statement. Mr. Blackwell. Mask off. Thank you, Honor. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mask off. Uh, <laughs> last uh, lawyer, I think, talking to you uh, with closings will be me, and I uh, won't be too long. I'm going to start talking to you about uh, what I call the 46th witness. Uh, you actually have heard from 45 witnesses on the stand, but there is a 46th witness. Yeah, this shit is bananas. And this witness was testifying to you before you got here to the courtroom. Uh, they testified over everybody else's testimony on the stand. It's the only witness that will be talking to you when you're back in deliberations. And that witness, ladies and gentlemen, is common sense. Common sense. We'll continue talking with you uh, all the while. Because while you've heard hours and hours and hours uh, of discussions here in the closing, Ultimately, it really isn't that complicated uh, in, in what it is you have to decide with respect to the excessive use of force and uh, the issue of causation. In fact, it is so simple that a child could understand it. In fact, a child did understand it when the nine-year-old girl said, get off of him. That's how simple it was. Get off of him. Common sense. Why is it necessary to continue applying deadly restraint to a man who is defenseless, who is handcuffed, who is not resisting, who is not breathing, who doesn't have a pulse, and to go on and do that for another three plus minutes before the ambulance shows up and then to continue doing it. How is that a reasonable exercise in the use of force? You can believe your eyes, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it was what you thought it was. It was what you saw. Uh, it was homicide. Now, Mr. Nelson spent quite a bit of time saying to you, perform an honest assessment. Look at all the evidence. Consider all of it. Reasonable officer. Reasonable officer is not magic words that you simply apply to Mr. Chauvin, and then he becomes a reasonable officer because you applied those words. Reasonable is as reasonable does. And here, what you saw wasn't reasonable, and you didn't get the whole truth. Notice how when you had the discussion about reasonable officer, Mr. Chauvin, the whole narrative cut off before we got to the point that Mr. Floyd was not moving, that he was not conscious, 
that he didn't have a pulse, and that Mr. Chauvin was still on top of him even when the EMTs showed up, and he still didn't get off of him. How is that what a reasonable officer does? And then if you look at the totality of the circumstances, which you heard so much about, why doesn't that tell you exactly where he was coming from? If we're talking about reasonable officer. Now, you heard any number of other things that, in looking at the totality of circumstances and trying to do an honest assessment, you didn't get the whole story either. You got bits and pieces and parts. And I call them a story, ladies and gentlemen, because it's either completely not true or the facts have been altered in order to make a point to you, which also makes it a story. What you're going to reach when you all deliberate is a verdict. Verdict is a Latin word that means the truth. You're not going to reach a story when all is said and done. You'll be getting at the truth. Why are we engaged in telling stories when we've heard evidence, facts from the stand? Why is that? But you just heard a number of them. I'll give you a few examples of the stories. You were just uh, talked to about how safe the prone position is. And you've heard this in the trial. The prone position is safe. Here are the Canadian studies. After everything you've heard, you already know now that not a single one of those studies ever examined anybody who had a knee on the neck. You know that. You also know that about these so-called prone studies, none of them actually measured what was the oxygen reserve. That is, how is the oxygen actually being affected by putting somebody in the prone position and any amount of weight on them? They never even measured it. You know that too, although that wasn't brought up when you've been told about the studies to show that the prone position is safe. You heard again about excited delirium. There was not a single witness who sat in that chair and gave you testimony under oath who told you that they felt that Mr. George Floyd suffered from excited delirium. Not one. One of the criteria for excited delirium is the person's impervious to pain. They don't feel pain. They're not people saying, my neck hurts, my knee hurts, everything hurts. They're not grimacing because their wrists hurt for excited delirium. That's a fact. If that's a fact, why are we talking about it? Why isn't that said if you're going to be hearing about excited delirium? Then we turn to Dr. Baker. For example, where there's a discussion of homicide and you were told that homicide was a medical term. That's not what Dr. Baker said. Dr. Baker said homicide means killed at the hands of another. It means at the hands of another is what homicide means. At the hands of another. And he was pretty clear in discussing the cause of death. He said it was cardiopulmonary arrest complicating law enforcement subdual, restraint, and neck compression. And he did explain what complicating means. He said it means in the environment of. So it reads as though it's cardiopulmonary arrest in the environment of law enforcement, subdual, restraint, and neck compression. What you were just told, and that was attributed to Dr. Baker, is that somehow he meant that this was an unexpected result. It was an unexpected re result of the law enforcement subdual restraint and neck, uh, subdual restraint and neck compression. Dr. Baker didn't come in to talk to any of us about use of force by police officers. He's, he's not in the mind of any police officer. It is not what he said. There were simply words that were put into his mouth, but you check your notes on what his testimony actually was, and you'll see that that wasn't it. 
You've heard now for the umpteenth time in this trial. What is the evidence on autopsy for asphyxia? If you're looking at the body tissues, you've heard it from witness after witness on the stand. I even pulled out big, giant, thick textbooks that even Dr. Fowler, the defense own expert, says these are reliable authorities on it. Every one of them says that in half or better of the cases where somebody has clearly died from insufficient oxygen, you don't see any evidence in the body tissues. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a fact. Now, if this is supposed to be about performing an honest assessment, looking at the totality of the evidence, how is that not mentioned to you in summarizing the evidence? How is it not mentioned to you? And I can't even stop there because you were also told about the law that applies to this. You first told by Judge Cahill, and no question that was accurate, but then you were told by Mr. Nelson, no question that was not accurate. I'll tell you what I mean. When he was talking about causation, so and he talks about a fentanyl, whole damn machine. heart failure, Shit. hypertension, and he said that we have to show beyond a reasonable doubt that none of these other factors played a role. That's not the law. And you don't have to believe me. You'll be able to read it yourself. You'll have the instructions there and see if Mr. Blackwell isn't telling you the truth. That what we need to show is that the defendant's actions were a substantial causal factor in his death. Doesn't have to be the only causal factor. Doesn't have to be the biggest substantial factor. It just has to be one of them a substantial factor in the cause of death. And uh, the instruction will say that the fact that other causes contribute to the death does not relieve the defendant of criminal liability. There can be other factors. In fact, Dr. Baker had a section, I think that was called other factors, and he was clear. Those <laughs> other factors are not direct causes of the death. The direct cause was cardiopulmonary arrest that was in the environment of the police subdual restraint and neck compression. Point blank. When I got back uh, and got him to question him again after Mr. Nelson was finished, all I did was ask him about what he had written in his certificate on the case. Cause of death, cardiopulmonary arrest, manner of death, homicide at the hands of another. He was crystal clear on it. Uh, he did not uh, equivocate. But what you have gotten here is uh, a number of what I'd call stories um, that once you uh, analyze them uh, and you uh, once you analyze them uh, and uh, against the facts and the evidence that you've heard, you'll see what I mean. Take, for example, the notion that Mr. Floyd dying of cardiopulmonary arrest, dying from low oxygen, was just coincidental. He just happened to die at the same time, in the same place, of factors completely unrelated to what Mr. Chauvin was doing with his subdual restraint and neck compression. That's a story, ladies and gentlemen, and defies common sense. I'll show you what I mean. Oh, sorry. No, 
Now, the judge did seem like he was open to what Nelson was saying, though, but uh, so we, uh, he's still if we letting just it continue. I don't know what exactly Nelson was. Each day that Mr. Floyd lived, he was born October 14, 1973, and stories, I guess. on a page. And we looked at over his lifetime. You'll see here, if we uh, look over 10 years, 20, 30, 40 years, up to uh, May 25th of 2020, that means that Mr. Floyd would have lived up to that day oh, yeah, 17,026 yeah. days. Now, only one of these dots corresponds to May 25th. <laughs> only one of them. All the rest of these days, all the rest of these dots represent days that Mr. Floyd was living. He was breathing. He had a being. He was living. He was breathing and had a being with every single disorder that Mr. Nelson has chronicled each and every day. You know, with his struggles with opioid addiction, uh, with his high blood pressure, et cetera, every single day, except the one day. May 25th, that tiny little speck of a dot, and not even that whole day. Because as we know, there was a 10 minute segment, nine minutes and 29 seconds, that he didn't survive. So in a, one day's time, there are 144 of those, 10 minute seconds. And only one of them was the reason that Mr. Floyd uh, failed to survive. And what happened in that space? Well, you know what happened, ladies and gentlemen. That's where there was deadly force wow, applied oh, by no. Mr. Chauvin. We know it was deadly force because we heard from Officer Zimmerman on the stand. That was fucking Who told us it was deadly force? Fuck, he said it's deadly force because it's force capable of killing a person. Prager, you make which that. Which makes it Somebody deadly said. force. Now. Deadly force, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Where's the fentanyl bubble? Once you see what Mr. Floyd was subjected to with this deadly force in the prone position, uh, there are certain consequences or the risks that come with the prone position and the use of this kind of deadly force. And that primary risk is it affects your breathing. You heard that from witness after witness after witness. It affects your breathing, makes it harder to breathe. You put the subject sure question, into the, all the bubbles position as bubbles. soon as possible <laughs> because you don't want to affect their breathing. Low oxygen. Do you have evidence of low oxygen here? There is evidence of low oxygen, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that is medically uh, unassailable, medically. Take, for example, the fact that Mr. Floyd uh, had an anoxic seizure. That is, he's already unconscious not breathing and the body is simply having a twitching reflex. That anoxic seizure represents low oxygen to the brain. And that is what causes the anoxic seizure. But not only that, he suffered from, remember, PEA. Um, and you remember we talked about the, the PEA, the pulseless electrical activity, PEA? The common cause of PEA is low oxygen. You can't fake it. You can't make that up. This dude's still in arguments off fucking, like, woke Twitter. I literally heard that same argument. Oh, he was alive all these other days. He was a fucking of a, fentanyl a fiend. Until he ran a job. And okay, good place, job, Jerry. You, know, you made a graph for it. That's the only and, uh, 29 seconds. Now, you heard the statement that the state is seeking to ignore uh, significant He lived until he died. Uh, oh, my God. Issues. Uh, and... Nothing could be Somebody further clip from the that truth. out. I'll, we got to put that on a shirt. What Look you at that heard shit. from doctor after doctor. 
whether it's Dr. Langenfeld, the ER physician, Dr. Rich, the cardiologist, Dr. Tobin that you've heard so much about, Dr. Smock, um, so many of the doctors you heard, that, that here's, and Dr. Dr. Baker also, but and Dr. Thomas, here's where they all converge, is that they recognize first and foremost uh, that there was a use of force by Mr. Chauvin that set off a number of things medically for Mr. Floyd that culminated in his death. Remember, he died of cardiopulmonary arrest. That means the heart has stopped and he's no longer breathing. Now, Dr. Baker will tell you uh, that, that this stress to which Mr. Floyd was subjected in the subdual and the restraint by Mr. Chauvin and others was enough in, of, and by itself to explain Mr. Floyd's demise. When asked the question, what about his oxygen levels? Did he have insufficient oxygen? That's not something I can calculate as a forensic pathologist, said Dr. Baker. That's not something I can calculate as a forensic pathologist, said Dr. Fowler. And Dr. Thomas said the same thing. But the doctor, they said they would defer to pulmonologists in every case, which is who and what we have in Dr. Po Dr. Uh, Tobin, who did the calculations, um, who could tell you how much oxygen was in Mr. Floyd's body. And not only that, he could tell you that when he's put into the prone position, that his oxygen would have decreased by 24%. He can tell you that when weight was put on Mr. Floyd's back, the oxygen diminished, diminished to 43%. He can tell you that uh, with the weight on his back, that the hypopharynx would have narrowed to 15% or lower, making it difficult for anyone to breathe through. He was able to tell you medically, scientifically, not only could Mr. Floyd not have survived this diminution in oxygen reserves and supply, but no human being Big Kane 12, thank you, brother, survive. for the sub. Based on the science based on the science. Now, if it's dismissed as theoretical, which is a word I think I heard, theoretical, well, it's the same theoretical that Dr. Fowler said that he would defer to someone else to create because he can't do it. And that's exactly what Dr. Tobin did. And so here, ladies and gentlemen, we're only required to show you that Mr. Chauvin's conduct was a substantial cause, a substantial factor in Mr. Floyd's death. Did he simply die automatically from uh, and exclusively from the low oxygen? Ultimately, the low oxygen translates into not breathing and the heart stopping because we have cardiopulmonary arrest. Um, did it first impact the heart and the heart stop first? Ultimately, they both stop because we have cardiopulmonary arrest, all stemming back to the subdual restraint and neck compression uh, from Mr. Chauvin. They all agree that that was the precipitating point. And then from there, the stresses, the strains on Mr. Floyd's body, the low oxygen culminated in, in his uh, ultimate uh, demise and his passing away. So I want to uh, address kind of several other points on the heading of what I think uh, are Stories that you've heard versus, uh, I think, the, uh, the truths uh, here. Um, you know, when the case started, I think you all were asked and talked to about there being two sides to every story. Two sides to every story. 
which is one of the most dangerous things, I think, about the process of truth because it suggests that everything is simply reduced to a story. And if it is a story, uh, that means there can be two multiple sides to a story and there can never be a truth or reality, except that what we're about here is getting to the truth um, and not simply um, stories. Now, it is most certainly right, for example, for a police officer to take seriously uh, this overarching mission of the police department, embracing uh, the sanctity of, sanctity of life and protection of the public as the highest values. But it is equally wrong. It is equally wrong to take this badge, which is a symbol of a commitment to a higher calling to serve the people, to use this badge as a license to abuse the public, to mistreat the public, to not follow uh, proper procedures, to not render aid when you should administer aid. That's, that's wrong, that's not a story, that's simply wrong. And the only two sides to that would be the W and the G uh, for that being wrong. Now, you have heard uh, I'm not sure I like that line. Uh, statements Halfway to the effect of Mr. Chauvin being concerned about uh, the bystanders and about others. Well, if you are looking at the totality of the evidence, you have to bear in mind that at, at, at all relevant times here, there were five grown men police officers right there. And uh, four right there on the scene. And then you got Officer Chang who was there too. There's a radio uh, to call for backup if they felt it was needed. Um, you didn't hear any evidence about any call for backup uh, at all. Now, there was concern here that, uh, that Mr. Chauvin uh, was concerned. And I won't say much more about body language than has already been discussed. And you'll decide for yourself whether that was the face of one who was afraid at the time. Because he had all of the power at this point. He had the bullets, guns, he had the mace that he uh, threatened uh, the bystanders with, he had backup, he had the badge, uh, and uh, he had all of it. And, uh, and, and what was there to be afraid of here, particularly at this scene? There were three high school juniors there and a second grader who was going to the store uh, to get candy. There was a high school senior who was taking her cousin uh, to the store, a first responder on the scene. They're about to get the case, I and think. And Donald Williams. If he'll ever shut his mouth. Um, who wanted nothing more than to try to intervene to try to save Mr. Floyd's life. Mr. Charles McMillan, a 61-year-old uh, man, uh, that if I gave him a name, I would call him the mayor of the neighborhood. Uh, he yeah, just likes to it. see what's going on and, uh, and to look out for things, but he was simply there to try to also to intervene to try to save Mr. Floyd's life. So this wasn't the face of fear or concern or worry. You've seen what the face of fear and worry looked like uh, that day at that time. That's what fear and worry uh, looked like when Mr. George Floyd was well aware that with one wrong move of his hand, one turn in the wrong direction, and it could be his last turn that he could be shot to death over an investigation around a fake $20 bill. Um, that's fear. Now you're told 
some stories about high as fuck. the uh, the bystanders uh, and uh, the suggestion that they were an unruly crowd. You've gotten to meet them now. Uh, you've uh, gotten to meet uh, two thirds of ones who were there that uh, at that time. I described them earlier as a bouquet of humanity. And I call them that because they came at different ages, uh, different genders, different races, and they all came together focused on the one thing, uh, which was they saw that a human being they did not know was suffering, and they wanted to try to intervene. It's like to Captain stop Planet or some shit. The suffering, and uh, in that sense, uh, they were not only symbols of the love and caring we want to encourage. But they were also something more than that. They were also symbols of what it means to respect this badge. Because they were in a very difficult spot then. You saw them on the stand almost to the last one in tears. Uh, you felt the anguish even a year after the fact. Uh, they felt torn between their love for the sanctity of life itself that had them wanting to intervene to try to save Mr. Floyd's life and on the other hand, their respect for the authority that the badge represents, for the city, for the state. They were torn between it. Now, the ultimate proof of this is if those bystanders did not respect this badge, they could very easily have taken the law into their own hands and simply have removed Mr. Chauvin. Then we wouldn't have to have any discussions about how reasonable what? it was for him to stay on a man's neck who wasn't even breathing. Uh, we wouldn't have to have any of these kinds of discussions at all. But none of them did that. None of them did that. Because they respected this badge even if it tore them up inside. Boy, none what? of them did that. Instead, what? they called the police on the police. Instead, they picked up their phones to memorialize yeah, what, is he suggesting? what they were suggesting. seeing so that it could not be forgotten what was and that? so that it could not be misrepresented. Instead, they waited for their day to come in and, uh, and talk with you. Not, ladies and gentlemen, to tell you their story, advocate vigilante but justice? to tell the truth about what they experienced. They didn't deserve to be called unruly because they weren't. And you will hear time and again, oh, the crowd was getting louder. Oh, the crowd was getting more agitated. Earlier in the trial, you hear, oh, they were getting angrier and angrier. And so we, we can't see somehow what it is they're getting upset around. The fact that a defenseless, helpless man is literally losing his life one breath at a time right in front of them and there's nothing that they can do. If you love life, you get excited when you see life being taken, when that's your perception. That's what they were excited about. And if they all just simply wanted a donut in watching this, you might wonder what's wrong with them. That's why they were upset. So you felt their pain, you felt their sense of helplessness. What you heard about him was a story, ladies and gentlemen. The stories really are just excuses that get told. The use of the word stories. The fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, that there can be no excuse for police abuse. And, uh, and, no and I'll be clear, ladies and gentlemen. Abuse. Was that their um, catchphrase? I will tell you, if I think there's a fact that's been altered, I will tell you what it is. And, uh, and that's all I ever need when I say story. But there is no excuse, ladies and gentlemen, for police abuse. And, uh, and you've heard any number of these. Uh, so let me, let me walk through some of them. Um, you've heard uh, accounts that the, the traffic was distracting. 
uh, to Mr. Chauvin? Well, the fact was that you heard from the 911 dispatcher, Jenna Scurry, who was watching the scene. And she said that the officers remained in the same place, in the same positions for so long on top of the body of Mr. Floyd that she thought the camera was broken and frozen. They weren't distracted. They weren't looking around because they were concerned about uh, being disturbed by the traffic or anything else. They had an officer there, Officer Tao, whose job it was just to fend off and keep away distractions and could have called others uh, if needed. You've also uh, heard about the paramedics uh, taking, took too long. The paramed paramedics took longer to get there than was planned. Uh, should have been there within three minutes. And your common sense will tell you that the mere fact that the paramedics took longer than Mr. Chauvin and me have thought is certainly not a reason uh, to either use excessive force or to abuse or to be indifferent to the fact that somebody is no longer breathing and doesn't have a pulse, uh, that the paramedics took too long. You heard about the, uh, the paraganglioma. The paraganglioma, which was also referred to as an incidentaloma, uh, because that's how rare it is and insignificant it is. Um, the hallmark of a paraganglioma, headaches. Mr. Floyd wasn't reporting headaches. So if you're going to talk about a paraganglioma, why don't you talk about the fact that you know the hallmark is headaches and he didn't have them? If this is about getting at the truth and as well um, performing an honest assessment, if that's what we're doing. The fact of the matter is the paragangliomas, there have been six cases in reported history, all of reported history, where somebody had a sudden death from a paraganglioma, ever, period. Carbon monoxide. Now, other than Mr. Nelson saying that the car was turned on at the time, nobody from that witness stand, from the evidence in this case, said the police car was on. You did hear it was a hybrid vehicle. You know, how are we talking about carbon monoxide with a car that there's no evidence from the stand that the car was even on? If we're going to talk about carbon monoxide and give this a reasonable, honest assessment. But even more to the point about carbon monoxide that you just can't lose sight of. Whose car was it, ladies and gentlemen, that if Mr. Floyd is being subdued on the ground by Mr. Chauvin, and if he puts his face in front of a tailpipe of a car that's spewing out carbon monoxide, why isn't that an unreasonable use of force by an officer? In your custody is in your care. It's not in your custody, I don't care. In your custody is in your care. What reasonable police officer would apprehend someone on the ground, subdue them, and put their face in front of a tailpipe of a car and then think that's a defense? Here, not particularly fair. There's no evidence the car was ever even on. And, and you learned all you need to know, which was if he was suffering from carbon monoxide, as Dr. Tobin told you, you wouldn't be able to get a 98% oxygen saturation from the oxygen they gave him artificially. You heard about the, uh, the fentanyl overdose. And with this one, you were just told, oh, Earlier, earlier that afternoon, he was asleep in the car. Ladies and gentlemen, that's not the hallmark of somebody who dies from a fentanyl overdose. It isn't just that you took a nap and dozed off. 
if you are if you pass away from a fentanyl overdose, you cannot be awakened. You are in a coma. Uh, if people are shaking you, it is to no avail. If we're doing an honest assessment of the facts, looking at the totality of the circumstances, if we're going to talk about fentanyl, death by fentanyl or an overdose, why isn't that said? He does not fit the description of anyone who dies from a fentanyl overdose, and even Dr. Fowler conceded it from the stand in terms of what a fentanyl overdose looks like. It does not look like somebody who's saying, I can't breathe, my neck hurts, my, my back hurts, everything hurts. You know, you can't win, I'm not trying to win. That's not what happens when somebody uh, is, is suffering or dying from a fentanyl overdose. They are completely non-responsive and not reactive at all. Methamphetamine, ladies and gentlemen, what meth? There was so little of it that it was below uh, the uh, therapeutic levels that are given, you heard that from the toxicologist from NMS, the laboratory that Hennepin County sends off, the medical examiner pathology, uh, not pathology, but uh, blood samples to, to test for, for tox. He told you it was a minuscule amount of meth that was in his blood. And then we heard about the pills. Now, across examination, uh, on the pills, I brought out the fact that what they were saying was a pill that he was taking in the car was just as likely chewing gum and showed you just before he was Wait. in the car, he was chewing gum in the store, opened his mouth, he saw the same like substance in his mouth. But here's the deal about the pills. If we're really going to give this an honest assessment of hey, the so evidence. what about the pills? Why are we talking about pills that are not in the Xanax? system? We know what's in the bloodstream already. Hey. We know he struggles in the opioid addiction. Why are we talking about pills that we know we're not in it's George Floyd? Gum. Why? You have to decide that for yourselves, ladies and gentlemen. Why is that even being brought up when we know what's in his bloodstream? What is the point? And you keep hearing drugs in the car, drugs in the car. And the drugs were they went on. one pill. Dude. Oh. One. Dude, when one it pill. Fucking it was not in George Nelson, Floyd. He's taking forever, too. the suggestion the that he was somehow taking it in handcuffs in the police car. Can we get the gavel Which out makes here, no please? sense. Uh, there was no evidence of George Floyd taking any pills in the police car at, at all. There was a pill found there. Acorn, um, thank you. Only. Militant milkshake. Man, these uh, guys. You heard uh, it's been a marathon today. talking about Dr. Tobin and his 46 years of experience studying the way people breathe. But, you know, Mr. Chauvin's not a medical doctor. He doesn't have... Uh, these years of experience and hours to pull over records. He didn't need it, ladies and gentlemen, because you know who else is not a medical doctor? You? Nine-year-old girl is also not a medical doctor. You didn't need to be a medical doctor uh, to understand that when somebody's saying, I can't breathe, and not just saying it, everything about them is showing that they can't breathe, and when that ends, they just are passed out. You don't need uh, a, a PhD you don't need an MD uh, to understand how fundamental breathing is to life. And when somebody's saying, I cannot breathe, and they have passed out, and you're aware that they don't even have a pulse, even a nine-year-old little girl knows it. Get off of them. That's all you needed to know uh, in that case. You, um, just a couple more of these, because I can't even uh, do them all, because there were so many. This concern that George Floyd 
would somehow come to again. He would come back around again. And they'll say, not with, we didn't really mean superhuman strength, except maybe we really did mean superhuman strength, because he's got all this extra strength now, and he's going to do dastardly things. Now, we heard from three medical examiners, ladies and gentlemen, three of them. Between the three of them, they probably have done close to 15,000 autopsies. And not a single one of them testified about one instance ever where somebody who didn't even have a pulse somehow spontaneously came back to life, broke handcuffs, and rampaged the city. It's the facts of this case, not some other thing. Mr. Floyd didn't even have a pulse. That didn't justify keeping your knee on his neck when you should have been administering CPR when you could have brought him back to life again because you're afraid that he would come to with no pulse and rampage the city. How are you going to give him CPR? That's the sort of he had COVID. Halloween movies, ladies and gentlemen. Not in real life. Not in real life. The idea that Mr. Floyd uh, suffered from a sudden death, which is what Dr. Fowler was saying. Now, he'll say that Mr. Floyd had a fatal arrhythmia in the end. That's misleading in a way because, as you've heard from doctor after doctor, ultimately everybody dies in the end of a fatal arrhythmia. Everybody dies of cardiopulmonary arrest, the heart stops and the lung stops, and then the last thing that happens is, look, you get an arrhythmia, and then that's it. Now, is there any evidence that there was an arrhythmia as the primary cause of his death, unrelated to the subdual restraint and neck compression on the ground? Zero. There was zero evidence that he had a heart attack. Zero. In fact, his heart was in such normal condition that Dr. Baker, during the autopsy, didn't even have a need to photograph it intact uh, because it was so normal. Now, Dr. Rich seems curious. Um, did not say uh, anything akin to George Floyd having a normal heart. That's not what he said. What he said was that he had a strong heart. He had a strong heart. And what he meant by that is that he sees uh, patients all the time who may be uh, in need of transplants, who have serious cardiac disease, and they can't even get a normal blood pressure. And he talked to you about how uh, George Floyd, having lived with this for some time, explains how it is that his body and its, uh, the uh, arteries that serve the heart um, were able to uh, compensate uh, in the case of Mr. Floyd, and uh, such that uh, he did not die of a fatal arrhythmia, and there's no evidence that he died of any, any kind of a heart abnormality. Just uh, two more of these are things I just want to clarify. There was a lot of uh, discussion uh, during the, about the police conduct. The situations can change rapidly from moment to moment. And, and on this, I don't want you at all to lose sight of, again, the facts here. Uh, that for the nine minutes and 29 seconds, the problem was there was nothing moving or changing, no matter what. Whether Mr. Floyd was calling out for his life, whether he was motionless uh, with an anoxic seizure, um, whether he had no pulse. There was no movement, no split-second decisions, no moment-to-moment. -moment. Um, to the extent you're hearing that as representative of this case, it is not representative of this case, does not meet the facts of this case. 
um, at all. So the fact of the matter is, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the use of unreasonable force, the unreasonable use of force is an assault. Uh, here it was an assault and it contributed to the death of, uh, of Mr. Floyd. Now you were told with respect to the law that the state needs to show that Mr. Chauvin intended to act unlawfully or to break the law. Look at your instructions, that's not accurate. Uh, we will in fact, and we own our burden of showing that he in fact acted unlawfully, but not having to prove that he intended to act unlawfully. We need only to show that he intended to do what he did, which was to put the knee on the neck, the knee on the back, and against the shoulder, that it wasn't an accident, and that we will show. Um, and we own that burden. So there really aren't two sides to the story still alive. Let's go. about Thank whether you, this Acorn. use of force was unreasonable. It was not authorized by oh, uh, the Minneapolis Police Department. Uh, the pressure on Mr. Floyd's uh, neck And I know that you were told when Mr. Nelson was just here that this was not a, a choke. Uh, it was not a chokehold. And that uh, Donald Williams had uh, suggested or so testified and if you remember that testimony, Donald Williams disagreed with him every time and said that was, in fact, a chokehold, uh, even on the one side, and he explained how that even works. And, uh, and while Mr. Nelson quibbled with him, Donald Williams never gave that up uh, in his testimony. So there aren't two sides to the story as to the, unuse, uh, the unreasonable use hey, of force. With the militant milkshake and, and when the Mr. Fireball. Floyd is saying, please, please, I can't breathe 27 times in just a few minutes, you saw it when Mr. Chauvin did not let up and we didn't get up. Even when he, when he passed out, not breathing anymore, he doesn't let up or get up. When he knows he doesn't have a pulse, he doesn't let up or get up. Even when the ambulance comes, he doesn't let up or get up even then. They have to come up and tap him before he will let up and get up off the body of Mr. George Floyd. And they try to resuscitate him uh, in, the, in the ambulance, and they never do. Uh, he never regains consciousness. He never breathes again. His heart never pumps again. And uh, Mr. George Floyd was uh, deceased. So finally, ladies and gentlemen, I will sit down in a minute, but I wanted to save till the end what I thought was the biggest shading of the truth or what I call story. Disregard the phrase shading the truth. Well, here's what I thought then was the largest de departure from here the evidence. I'll show it to you. You were told, um, for example, that Mr. Floyd died. That Mr. Floyd died because his heart wow, was. Wow, he's too playing big. dirty. You heard that testimony. Blackwell. And now having seen all the evidence. Having heard all the evidence, you know the truth. Shade the truth? What do you mean and by that? the truth of the matter is that the reason George Floyd is dead is because Mr. Chauvin's heart was too small. The jury could grab your instructions again. 
And turn to page 11. Members of the jury, if you have any question about any part of the testimony or any legal question after you have retired for your deliberation, please address it to me in writing and give it to the sheriff's deputy with the juror number of your foreperson on the note. What did he say at the It will end? take I some time to answer any questions because Epstein, I will have to consult you. with your lawyers didn't drive and receive himself. their input before answering your question. I do not say this to discourage questions, but only to advise you that it will take some time to provide you with an answer. As I told you, you will take with you into the jury room copies of the said? instructions that I am reading to you. He didn't die because the lawyers Floyd's and I have too determined big. It's that these instructions small? contain oh all the laws that are necessary for you to know wow. in order to decide the case. I cannot give you a trial transcript. No such that. transcript exists. We count on the jury to rely on its collective memory. Well, y'all don't even have. You have been allowed to take notes during the trial, and you may take those notes with you into the jury room. You should not consider those notes binding or conclusive. That's pretty pathetic. Whether they are your notes or those of another juror. The notes should be used as an aid to your memory and not as a substitute for it. It is your recollection of the evidence that should control. You should disregard anything contrary to your recollection that may appear from your own notes or those of another juror. You should not give any greater weight to a particular piece of evidence solely because it is referred to in a note taken by a juror. Now, we all have feelings, assumptions, perceptions, fears, and stereotypes about others. Some biases we are aware of, and others we might not be fully aware, aware of, which is why they are called implicit or unconscious biases. No matter how unbiased we think we are, our brains are hardwired to make unconscious decisions. We look at others and filter what they say through the lens of our own personal experience and background. Because we all do this, we often see life and evaluate evidence in a way that tends to favor people who are like ourselves or who have had life experiences like our own. We can also have biases about people like ourselves. One common example is the automatic association of male with career and female with family. Bias can affect our thoughts, how we remember what we see and hear, whom we believe or disbelieve, and how we make important decisions. As jurors, you are being asked to make an important decision in this case. You must, one, take the time you need to reflect carefully and thoughtfully about the evidence. Two, think about why you are making the decision you are making and examine it for bias. Reconsider your first impressions of the people Lenny, and the evidence you. in this case. If the people involved in this case were from different backgrounds, for example, richer or poorer, more or less educated, older or younger, or of a different gender, gender identity, race, religion, or sexual orientation, would you still view them and the evidence the same way? Three, listen to one another. You must carefully evaluate the evidence and resist and help each other resist any urge to reach a verdict influenced by bias for or against any party or witness. Each of you have different backgrounds and will be viewing this case in light of your own insights, assumptions, and biases. Listening to different perspectives may help you to better identify the possible effects 
these hidden biases may have on decision making. And four, resist, re resist jumping to conclusions based on personal likes or dislikes, generalizations, gut feelings, prejudices, sympathies, stereotypes, or unconscious biases. The law demands that you make a fair decision based solely on the evidence, your individual evaluations of that evidence, your reason and common sense, and these instructions. <coughs> when you return to the jury room to discuss this case, you must select a jury member to be foreperson. That person will lead your deliberations. In order for you to return a verdict, whether guilty or not guilty, each juror must agree with that verdict. Your verdict must be unanimous. You should discuss this case with one another and deliberate with a view towards reaching agreement if you, can, if you can do so without violating your individual judgment. You should decide the case for yourself, but only after you have discussed the case with your fellow jurors and have carefully considered their views. You should not hesitate to re-examine your views and change your opinion if you become convinced they are erroneous. But you should not surrender your honest opinion simply because other jurors disagree or merely, or merely to reach a verdict. Now, a single verdict form for each count has been prepared for you, your use, and when you have finished your deliberations and have reached a verdict as to a specific count, the foreperson should mark the appropriate choice on the form with an X and then date and sign the verdict form, filling in the foreperson's juror number on the indicated line and then signing the foreperson's name on the second line. And just so you know, the forms look like this. So there's very little to add, just an X, your juror number of the foreperson, and the foreperson's signature. The order in which the guilty and not guilty choices appear on the verdict forms is strictly alphabetical and should not in any way be considered as indicating which choice is the correct choice. When all the verdict forms oh, are completed, Lenny, the form you, should be placed in the Give provided the envelope, subs here the sealed that. and given to the deputy, who will convey the verdicts to the court. At a time designated by the court, your verdict will be read out loud in the courtroom in your presence. During your deliberations, you must not let bias, prejudice, passion, sympathy, or public opinion influence your decision. You must not consider any consequences or penalties that might follow from your verdict. You must not be biased in favor of or against any party or witness because of his or her disability, gender, race, religion, ethnicity, sexual orientation, age, national origin, or socioeconomic status. Your verdict must be based solely on the evidence presented and the law that I give you. Your like or dislike of any witness, attorney, or party should not have an effect on the outcome of the case. The state of Minnesota and the defendant have a right to demand, and they do demand, that you will consider and weigh the evidence, apply the law, and reach a just verdict, regardless of what the consequences might be. DD12 says the you next coffee or meal fair. is on me. Appreciate it. Remember Kill that it is fair to find the defendant guilty if the law, evidence and the, the law require The jury almost has the case, ladies and gentlemen. On the other hand, it is fair to find the defendant not guilty if you are not convinced of his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Press one. Now, members of the jury, the case is in your hands as judges of the facts. I'm certain Three, that you realize jury that this case is important and serious, and therefore deserves your careful One, not guilty. Two, guilty. Three for mistrial slash hung jury. Let's Ready? go, ladies and gentlemen. Live on the court retort.
The jury has the case. Our mandate has you swear been that you will keep these jurors together from all other persons and that you will not allow anyone to communicate with them or overhear their deliberations, that you will not make any comment to them about the law or the facts in this case, and that you will not disclose to anyone except this court anything which you may learn from their deliberations. I do. Thank you. Members of the jury, you're going to go with the deputy now back to your usual room, uh, including jurors 96 and 118. Right hand, sorry. You, however, will be diverted to my office. You are our alternates and will oh. be a part of the deliberations. They didn't know but the I would whole like to time. Talk to you a little bit, so uh, you can go with the remainder of the jury, but follow the uh, sheriff deputy instructions. Wow. All rise for the jury. So two of them the whole time didn't know that they were going to be alternates. And then today they got told that you're alternates and you're not actually going to be sitting on the jury today. Holy shit. So they were sitting there taking notes, acting like they were going to get to vote because they thought they were going to get to vote. And then they found out, nah, you guys have been alternates this whole time. Holy shit. All right, a couple of things. I know uh, the defense was in the process, I think, of making a... Uh, expressing a concern or an objection to counsel's argument belittling the defense is that what I correctly I correctly perceive that objection I think we dealt with it sufficiently during the objections during the rebuttal so there'll be no additional instruction in that regard I do do believe that it constitutes prosecutorial misconduct and is potentially basis for grounds for a mystery Okay, I, that, I think the use of the word nonsense uh, is what you're talking about originally? Originally, Your Honor, but then in rebuttal, there were repeated, repeated comments about how we were, wow. and implications that we were, um, that we were shading was one example, that we were creating Halloween stories was another example, that these were stories, and, and that was a repeated comment. Um, stated that we misrepresented facts and put words into Dr. Baker's mouth, uh, that we made several statements that they put forth as stories. Uh, After the court instructed uh, him to use the, stop using the word stories, he clarified that it's just fabricated facts. Uh, And so there were multiple references to that, um, that we were shading the truth, right? I mean, and again, so multiple objections this is essentially uh, governed by uh, state versus mcdaniel and the final argument to the jury of prosecutors governed by a unique set of rules which differ significantly from those governing counsel in civil suits and even those governing defense counsel in the very same criminal trial these special rules follow directly from the prosecutor's inherently unique role in the criminal justice system justice system which mandates that the prosecutor not act as a zealous advocate for criminal punishment but as the representative of the people in an effort to to, uh, seek justice. For example, that when a prosecutor argues that a defense is meritless, she cannot belittle the defense either in the abstract or suggesting that the defense was raised because it was the only defense that would succeed. There's lots of law in this, Your Honor, um, and essentially these comments, the repeated Comments um, constitute prosecutorial misconduct. I'll note for the record that I overruled the first objection when Mr. Blackwell used the word story because it was isolated and in its context it did not seem to me to be belittling. 
However, the continued use of it, I did sustain the ultimate objection that council made to the use of the word stories and instructed the jury to disregard it. Also on shading the truth uh, that I sustained the objection and instructed the jury to disregard it. I'm not making any findings as to whether it was the type of prosecutorial misconduct that would result in a mistrial. I think it was adequately addressed by the court's instruction to disregard. All right. With regard to other matters we have, yeah, but that's uh, on I think the record there were some for bench conferences like that, that you want that are fairly historical that you wanted to uh, memorialize. So he, but didn't, also, he didn't take a he didn't like declare a mistrial, but he it's on the record now that he basically said that yeah, that is fucked up. Prior to coming into court this morning for. Uh, closing arguments. We had an in-chambers yeah, discussion about too, events of this weekend, uh, specifically referencing no way referencing that a, an elected official, uh, United point. States congressperson, was making um, it's an appellate what I issue interpreted yeah. to be, and what I think are reasonably interpreted to be threats against the sanctity of the jury process. Oh, uh, Maxine Waters. And intimidating. Uh, That's what he's talking jury, about. Demanding that if there's not a guilty verdict, that there would be further. Um, further uh, further problems, Your Honor. And um, given the fact that um, this jury has not been sequestered, it has been my position all along throughout the course of this case that this jury should have been sequestered at the, at the outset. The jury has not been continually, uh, has not been continually uh, told to stay away from media, only media about this case. There is a high probability that, that members of this jury have seen these comments, are familiar with these comments, and things that have happened throughout the course of this trial. I mean, it's unfortunate that there was another situation that, that occurred during the course of this trial. But obviously, Your Honor, we also, as I mentioned previously too, one of the jurors does live uh, in the city, Brooklyn Center, uh, as I recall. Although I think that is the alternate we just dismissed. I do not believe so. I believe I thought it was, but go ahead. Um, no, I'd have to go back and double check my notes. So, yeah, I mean, I just think that the, the sum total of this trial happening in such a public context, number one. Um, number two, while this, all of this, I mean, the media attention is profound. I have admittedly stayed away from 99% of it, but that has required me to stay away from all media. Um, I mean, the, the, this case has made... Uh, made its found its way into even fictional television, Your Honor. There were uh, two. I was advised of two television shows in the course of the past uh, few days that specifically involved references to this particular case and the reactions of the characters in these stories to this particular case. Um, this jury has has, despite all best efforts, has been bombarded with information relevant to this case it is impossible to stay away from it unless you literally shut off your phone or you shut off your tv you shut off your computer and no such instructions have been given during the course of this trial well to be fair the last few times i've advised them i told them don't watch the news he did simple. say that he did I, say that if you can't even watch your favorite thursday night television program or, and it comes up i mean this this is this hey, is Anderson problem, says right? free the and why i have felt that this jury should have been sequestered uh, from the very also beginning. Also, the cum retort donated a dollar. Thank and you. so I had moved, um, based <laughs> on that, this, again, for a mistrial. This, the, the idea is, is that it is a public trial. I think the court has accomplished that. But the media attention is so profound. It is such a, um, I mean, 
it is such a modern uh, comparison. I mean, it's such a modern problem to have where literally I walk from this courtroom into the courtroom where I've been permitted to, to stay. During the course of this trial, I've received literally thousands and thousands and thousands of emails. Um, so much so that I don't even look at that particular email anymore. So, um, I mean, but my phone gives me alerts on things that just happened. I mean, you can't avoid it. And it is so per pervasive that it is, I just don't know how this jury, it can really be said to be that they are free from the taint of this. Um, and now that we have U.S. representatives, uh, threatening acts of, of, uh, of violence in relation to this specific case. It's, it's mind-boggling to me, Judge. Well, I'll give you that Congresswoman Waters may have given you something on appeal that may result in this whole trial being overturned. But what's the state's position? <laughs> Your Honor, the state's position, first and foremost, and this is a concern I raised at the beginning uh, of the proceedings, you know, well into jury selection, is that we can't uh, allow um, wow, statements like this, big. vague statements, to that's be big, considered though. part of the record. Wow. Appeal. If there's a specific statement Damn. that a specific U.S. representative made, um, <laughs> then there needs to be some sort of formal offer of proof with the exact quotes of the exact statement or some kind of a declaration. And I'm sure uh, Mr. Nelson can do that if he thinks that that's something that's appropriate. Uh, I don't know that uh, this particular representative made a spe specified threat of violence. I don't know what the context of the statement is. I also don't know what television shows um, uh, Mr. Nelson is referring to in terms of any of this. And so I just don't think that we can muddy the record with vague allegations as to things that have happened without you know, very specific evidence uh, that's wow, being offered listen. before the court. Wow. As a practical matter, through the jury selection process, uh, the court has provided instructions, uh, has determined whether or not there are any outside influences. The law presumes that the jury follows the judge's instructions. And the court has uh, instructed the jury, instructed the jury today, that they're not to let any outside influences or public opinion swear, uh, sway their deliberation. And the law presumes that they would be capable of doing that. And so without um, any sort of specific uh, offer of proof or information in the record, without any specific evidence <clears throat> that this particular juror Okay, let's fire up the was influenced in any particular way. Uh, I believe that the defendant's motion should be denied. And your honor, I make it. I, I make my comments. I mean, in the context of this is all such an evolving situation. Obviously, I spend my weekend preparing for closing closing uh, remarks, um, and I certainly can supplement the record with news articles. I can supplement the record with. You know, the storylines of the particular shows that were brought to my attention. So there's, I'm making it to note the record at this particular point, and I can certainly supplement. Yeah, you can supplement the record with whatever media reports. I'm aware of the media reports. I'm uh -huh. aware that Congresswoman Waters was talking specifically about this trial and about Dumb the unacceptability bitch. of uh, anything less than a murder conviction and talk about being confrontational, but you can submit the press articles about that. This goes back to what I've been saying from the beginning. I wish elected officials would stop talking about this case 
especially in Reverend a manner Madam that Judge. is disrespectful to the rule of law and to the judicial branch and our function. Wow, he's pissed. I think if they want to give their opinions, they should do so in a respectful and in a manner that is consistent with their oath to the Constitution to wow. respect a co-equal branch of government. Their failure to do so, I think, is abhorrent, but I don't think it has prejudiced us with additional uh, material that would prejudice this jury. They have been told not to watch the news. I trust they are following those instructions and that there is not in any way uh, a prejudice to the defendant beyond the articles that we're talking specifically pissed, about uh, the facts of this case. A congresswoman's opinion really doesn't matter a whole lot. Anyway, so motion for mistrial is denied. Uh, with regard to, uh, there was a report that counsel were made aware of a few days ago that a juror may have been talking to a major media outlet. Uh, we checked with that major, and it's, it appeared right from the beginning that it was third hand hearsay telephone game. Uh, that media uh, outlet, in fact, took it very seriously, did a nationwide contact of all of its reporters and staff to check out any veracity, and there apparently is none whatsoever. Nobody from this major media outlet made any contact, and I find that credible. And so just for the record, I pass that along. Now, I think we still have the... Uh, memorialization, but we also have to uh, talk about a Blakely waiver. Yes, Your Honor. Um, so a couple of things. Um, in terms of the memorialization of the sidebars and the objections, um, we had previously provided and we had suggested that we would, that we provided our memorandum of the objections that the defense had made at sidebars. Um, I am going to propose, with the, rather than just simply reading through and taking an hour's time um, that we submit uh, those. It's still good to have all that in the record. That, uh, I know he didn't happen. declare um, mistrial. consultation with the state, and they can include their objections that we did not include. It would be nice to include just essentially a stipulated pleading that sets out what the objection was and what the court's ruling. There's no need to repeat what the arguments were. The only thing that you need to preserve for appeal is what the objection was and what the court's ruling was. So I would encourage... Uh, both parties to get together and figure that out and file it reasonably quickly. I mean, it doesn't have to be today, tomorrow, or even the next day. Uh, but just to get on it while our memories are fresh. And if there's a discrepancy between the memories, uh, Your Honor, I, I'm expecting that we're going to be able to come up with a stipulated uh, document, but if there's anything that needs to be set out, we can we can just indicate our contrary memories of that and it should be pretty straight. Absolutely. I think that would be the best way to memorialize this in, it, in any case. All right. Other than Blakely, do we have any other issues to make a record of? Uh, no, Your Honor. I think we just need to have some administrative discussions about uh, questions, timing. And we can do that in a chamber's discussion. All right. Uh, with regard to Blakely. Sure. Um, I have not yet had Mr. Chauvin execute the written waiver. Again, I do have it. We can print it and, and get that taken care of. But I can do an oral waiver now if the court would. If you would. So, Mr. Chauvin, you take your mask off. <clears throat> Mr. Chauvin, you're aware that during the course of, of these proceedings, the state has filed what's called the Blakely Notice or a notice to uh, seek an aggravated sentence, correct? Yes. Um, I have explained to you the bases on which the state is seeking to have an aggravated sentence imposed on the in the event of a conviction on any one of the counts here, correct? Correct. 
Um, we've discussed those, and I have dis I have specifically advised you uh, that you have a right to have a jury decide uh, whether or not the state has proven those grounds for an aggravated sentence beyond a reasonable doubt. You have a right to have a jury decide if you violate right? And I've advised you that the state has to prove those grounds beyond a reasonable doubt. And um, we can waive that right and allow, if you're convicted, we can waive your right to a trial and allow the judge to make those determinations. I've advised you about that, right? Yes, um, now, do you want a jury to make a decision about the Big Kang 12, uh, thank proof you. required for the aggravated factors if there's a conviction? Yes, I have been, or Are you willing to waive your right to a trial on those matters? And allow I thought it would have been over much sooner than this, dude. I'm willing to waive it. Fucking kidding me. I should have known they would take the whole Mr. day. Mr. Shulman, again, I'm going to address you individually because this is another one of the decisions you have to make for yourself. Uh, this is a waiver of your jury trial right when it comes to aggravating factors. Normally, we would submit a verdict form with interrogatories with a question and yes or no options. And that's what generally the jury would consider. In order to say yes, the jury would have to be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt. The burden of proof does not change. It's only that I'm going to be the one who's answering those yes and no questions. It was always true that based on whatever the answers are to those, that I would be the one deciding if they constitute legally substantial and compelling circumstances, and we would expect briefs from both sides on that. Uh, do you understand that? Yes, I do. So basically, I will be answering those verdict form questions instead of the jury, uh, applying the standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Is that what you want to have happen? Yes, sir. All right. I would ask you that you file a written Blakely waiver in addition. We will, Your Honor. All right. Um, if we... Yeah, I just have a question on the form that was provided, and we can, again, it's an administrative question. Right, it's an administrative memorialization, so I'm, you can do that off the record. All right, uh, counsel, uh, I'm going to talk with the, basically give instructions to the alternates, give me 20 minutes, and then uh, why don't you come on back. All right, otherwise we are in recess until uh, we hear from the jury. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That means... The court retort is also about to be in recess until we hear from the jury. We don't know when the next episode of our program is going to be. Uh, we do know the kill stream will be back. I don't even know how the fuck I'm going to do the kill stream tonight. But uh, uh, whatever. <laughs> we'll do something for the kill stream tonight. I'm probably not going to start the kill stream till 10, honestly. Because uh, this stream went so many hours. It went seven hours. I was not expecting that. Um, thank you guys. I appreciate the con words. I'll probably start the kill stream at 10 p.m. Eastern. Killstream.live slash show. Um, so a lot of times it starts closer to 10 anyway. Uh, and I'll let you guys know if it goes any later. But I think we'll, 10 to 12 probably. We'll get in a couple hours uh, tonight for the kill stream. Uh, I won't forget the song at all. Oh, wait. What was the song? Oh, the Perry Mason? I might play a taste of it. Play a little bit of it. Hold on. Like, this is not, this is it. Oh, that's not the original, though. I want to hear the original. I don't think that's it. It sounds different, doesn't it? I thought it was, da -na 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 -na. hold on, let's see. Yeah, like that. Uh, there it is. There it is. Da -da. Yeah. No show for Worski tonight. Yeah, that's right. Oh, <laughs> 
it today? Well, I'm about to go off. So. I gotta hear it all. It's only a minute. It's real short. All right, there we go. Perry Mason. Uh, Dylan, thank you on Cash App. I appreciate that support. I uh, appreciate all the support all throughout this series. Um, I wanted to do something like this for a while. Um, now, we didn't have as many uh, guests and stuff. I want to do Adam's show very soon. We were supposed to do it last week. I'm thinking this week one day. Adam Green, yeah, I should be on his show. Uh, I've been wanting to do something like this for a while. The only thing is the second batch, towards the second half of shows, we didn't take as many calls, didn't have as many guests, but we still have Bibble and some other stuff by here and there. Um, so the next time we do it, we might have a little more... A collaborative atmosphere, but I certainly enjoyed uh, being the MC for all uh, of this trial. Pretty much uh, here uh, on the court retort is a lot of fun. I'm gonna get the uh, the podcast of this put up. I'm probably gonna have to splice it together, and I still need to get the recap podcast put up. Uh, but the next time you see me on the court retort, I'm gonna be delivering the verdict, uh, watching it live, I guess, here uh, with you guys. So I'm pretty excited about that, uh, and I don't know when it'll be. Uh, but I'll be ready if I have to. There should be like an hour notice whenever it comes out. So, uh, and it will be during the day. So I won't be any further than an hour from this studio. Uh, and if I have to fire up the fucking satellite radio uh, and broadcast it live from the fucking car, uh, I absolutely would, uh, IRL style. But uh, I won't get too far from the studio in case we have to run back. Uh, Clifford C. Clavin says, let's go, podcast gang, gang. I would agree with that. Definitely. I'm about to go. I need to fucking just decompress for a minute. Thank you, guys. That was a blast doing this. I uh, appreciate the support. Patreon episode just posted during this show. Uh, and, yeah, I'm about to I'm about to check out. Somebody said Andy canceled his show. Uh, well, if he wants to fire it back up, he could go ahead and do that. Uh, I don't know what he's got going on. I've just been in the zone all day. I'm not even... I'm not even sure. Yeah, I'm going to go try to see. It's pretty late now, though. I didn't get to see her today. That's like that and one other day is the only two days I missed, so... I might try to get up there, though, because there's still time to see her for maybe like 20 minutes, 30 minutes before uh, the end. I'm only 20 minutes away. That's another reason I'm going to go ahead and end. But thank you, guys. I just wanted to profusely uh, thank everybody for the support. We hit 1,000 today. Not only did we hit 1,000 viewers, we hit 1,500. Uh, so thank you so much. Uh, where is the song? Let me see if I can find it. There it is. Goodbye. What's it gonna be? What's gonna happen? Let me go ahead and uh, adjourn the festivities for today and for all, what, 20 episodes or so of the Corbin Tort. Thank you all. Tort is now adjourned. Thank you so much. See you on the kill stream.
Off as well with the late super chat. See you tonight on the kill stream.